Ladies and gentlemen, jury, the prosecution is not going to get that man today. No, because I'm going to get him. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to this edition of the Hagman and Hagman Report, coming to you live from our radio and television studios here in beautiful northwest Pennsylvania. I'm Doug Hagman with my son, Joe Hagman, something I like to call America's premier father-son investigative reporting team. have a lot of, lot of information coming fast and furious. We should uh, remember always to use that phrase, fast and furious, to keep uh, keep all of us. <laughs> uh, just to remind all of us that, uh, yeah, government plans behind the scenes. Um, I was thinking about Michael Hastings today. Period. Just leave it at that. Thinking about Benghazi today. Again, another period. It, whatever happened to those issues, yeah, gone. Um, I want to carry over and just kind of uh, sum up one thing, and then I'm going to toss it to Joe because there's just so much to get into. But, you know, it's it's interesting... Um, the landscape of today is interesting. And I say this because early today, well, not early according to my, my body clock, but 8 o'clock this morning, Eastern Time, The Hill published an article about Sean Hannity. And you might think, oh, this is just, you know, my goodness, wait, wait, when are you going to shut up about this? About that, uh, claim of uh, sexual, uh, harassment. You know, admittedly, I'm close to the situation. I know Pat Campbell from KFAQ out of Tulsa, where the woman who accused, uh, Sean Hannity of, uh, uh, sexual harassment appeared. And I knew, I knew about it contemporaneous with, with her broadcast. And I knew this was going to be an issue, but but see, here's why this is important. And it doesn't matter what you think of Sean Hannity, if you like him or don't like him. It's not it's not the personality. It's what is involved. Sean Hannity, uh, his monologue last night said it all. As a matter of fact, I almost think that he took a page out of our one of my monologues yeah it was funny uh yesterday listening to his show on the uh, ride to the studio <laughs> i could have swore uh he did take a page right out of your playbook because the, what he said and, and the way he phrased it is something that you say quite often y- yes and the, it's the 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 individual Involved in making the accusation. Let me just point out, I would classify in my personal opinion as an intellectual hobbit. At the very most. It's not about that individual. It's not about Sean Hannity. It's not about anything like that. Everyone's missing the, the bigger picture, which Sean Hannity explained last night. And he also explained in a hill, in a piece on the that, that uh, 
was published in The Hill today, referencing his monologue from Monday. Here's what he had to say. I have to start by addressing a well-orchestrated effort by the intolerant left in this country that is designed to silence every conservative voice and by any means necessary. He continues. Again, I'm quoting Sean Hannity. Now, I am speaking out tonight so that you, our audience, will understand what is really happening and what is at stake when it comes to freedom of speech in this country. There's the ticket. I'm going to continue. Sean Hannity has said that there's always been efforts during his time at Fox News to smear, and I'm quoting this now, to smear and slander and besmirch, and quote him. But those efforts have not been as intense and completely insane as they are now. And I quote, It has only gotten worse in the age of President Trump, end quote. Again, picking up the quote. Now, it's no secret I have been a supporter of the President and, of course, his policies. And quite simply, these liberal fascists, they can't stand conservative voices, end quote. Continuing on with, with what he said. Uh, he also said that he had thick skin and he's used to being attacked. But he added this, he can no longer remain silent and, uh, quote, let the left slander against me slide, end quote. New paragraph. So from now on, I want you to be informed of what I am doing and why I am doing it, end quote. Continuing. Again, I quote, if there's any person or group or organization, any media outlet that slanders, lies about me, besmirch as me and my character, I'm going to be calling them out, end quote. Writes the Hill, his comments come one day, it's a typo there. It's not the, I shouldn't, I'll digress a moment. Have you noticed the editorial uh, control, the editorial uh, um, supervision of these websites is just, uh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, his quotes come one day after conservative commentator, I'm not even going to mention her name, intellectual hobbit, said the Fox News host once invited her back to his hotel room after an event at a Detroit bookstore. I know the. I know this. I remember. Well, I know that situation. I'll just leave it at that. And don't forget. Okay, I. I don't know. For for better or worse, I do have contacts at Fox News. I, I do know people who are in direct contact with Sean Hannity. Um. While he may not even know me. And he knows, he knows of me, but he doesn't know me. Certainly he doesn't know my, what I know, and he, nor would he care. But again, I, I say this as someone with, with access to individuals who have 
in the um, first-hand information. Hannity mentioned that the accusations during his monologue, or Hannity mentioned the accusations during his monologue. He said his breaking point happened this past weekend when the individual, the intellectual hobbit, those are my words, not his, uh, whom Hannity claims has more, has for more than a decade made, quote, the most outrageous, unfair, untrue allegations against him, made, quote, ridiculously and ridiculous and completely untrue claims, end quote. Let me tell you something. Okay, this intellectual hobbit, in my personal opinion, has made accusations against me, against uh, Mark Levin, against Michael Savage, against insert conservative here, name of a conservative here. And uh, it's just, a na- in my personal opinion, it's just a nasty, crude, self-loathing individual. Right sanity. Now, in this fiercely divided vindictive climate, I will no longer allow slander to go unchallenged as I see this, and this is important, as I see this to be a coordinated effort afoot to silence those with conservative views. What have I been saying? I will fight every single lie about me and all uh, about uh, about me, about any in all legal means available to me as an American. Now, um, in his monologue, and I was going to play this, but I figured ah, I could just tell you as much. Remember, I had said, there are people out there who record, who write, transcribe every word that we say, that I say, that Joe says, that we say on there. And they publish, some publish it. Re- remember me saying that? Folks, Sean Hannity said that. Very same thing. Yeah, almost word for word. Yep. He said it on his radio show yesterday. And, um, you know, he's exactly right. This is what what we're seeing. And and, I'll I'll reread what you just wrote. Now, I'm not the only one of these uh, that liberal fascists routinely target. Like me, conservatives are monitored on radio and TV every word they say. Okay. And, And it's not. See, here's the thing. This is not about some obscure blogger in their, um, you know, right. we're wearing holy sweatpants. Right. And I'm not talking about the sacred kind, you know, with stains on on, on the on the pants or or adult diapers. You know, at least in one case that I'm pretty sure happens. Um, you know, no, this is a coordinated attack that goes beyond um, the left or right. Um, yeah, it's amazing. Um, you know, and, and we see what's going on with the uh, the censorship issues and the demonetization on YouTube. This all is the big story. Are yes. demonetized. Bill O'Reilly, uh, all these accusers coming out of the woodwork, kind of like when Trump was running for um, president. You remember how all these people out of you know people who worked with him ten, twenty years ago. Uh, people who still worked with him came out and said, oh, yeah, he sexually harassed me. He assaulted me. And in Bill O'Reilly's case, uh, it seems that he did have some issues at Fox News, but the timing was interesting. You have Alex Jones being, he's being exactly, by, exactly. Um, by uh, a yogurt company. Chobani. Chobani Yogurt yep. Company and many others. 
Um, now, Sean Hannity is being accused of, of sexual harassment. And, and this is one thing, and too. attack from advertisers. Yes, yes. It's, it's, a, it's a coordinated attack yeah. on many levels from, um, you know, corporations yep. um, to people being paid uh, to infiltrate, to troll online, to write falsehoods and whatnot. Um, it, and it's out of hand. It's crazy. I mean... How do you combat this, 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 Joe and, and ladies and gentlemen? I just want to say this, okay? You've got no idea how big this is, and Joe does. Joe knows. You, you've got no idea how big this is, and how finally, I, I really. Well, in fact, I did send a note saying, "Welcome to the party." You know, glad you could join us, Sean, because it's. <laughs> This is not a, really at issue here is not about sexual harassment. It's not about sexual harassment. It really is not. It's not about, um, it's, it, everything they say it's about, it's not about that. It's about silencing the opposition Mm -hmm. by any means necessary. It's, and here, now here's, a little bit of a an aside here, a parallel course. If you are a Christian, and by default, chances are you are politically and morally conservative if you are a Christian broadcaster, unapologetic Christian broadcaster, and, or, or writer, I guarantee you that everything, the, that all of the attacks are going to be Increased by orders of magnitude higher, greater than if you were just merely politically conservative. Now, I know that some of our detractors are going to say, oh, we just quit your whining. It's not about us. It really is not about us. It's not about Joe. It's not about me. It's not about Alex Jones. It's not about, it's not about us. It's about the message that we are trying to get out there. It's about our platform. It's like a, it's about our method of operation. Folks, right now, and I, we can, we can almost mark the day this happened. The course has changed. The people who are involved in this are doubling down. And I, there was something I cannot tell you exactly. I can't tell you with, I can't give you the specifics on this. But when I was reading a legal document, that should tell you something. And I read a sentence. This person, one sentence, one sentence in this document that was well over a hundred pages. One, one sentence. sentence. <laughs> one sentence. Gee. And in fact, it, it, to be frank, it was a f- sentence fragment. How does that work? Uh, you know, it was, it was an improper sentence. How's that? Yeah. yeah. Said it all. And I can tell you that you know what? I'm not, I'm not, I can't tell you. I cannot tell you directly what what it said, but I can tell you what it was in reference to. Trafficking. 
child trafficking. And the political parties child trafficking. It didn't fit in the it just didn't fit. But it didn't say child trafficking, okay, but that's what it referenced. It didn't fit. How am I losing you? Joe said you're losing me. Am I losing you? Seriously, okay. Ask well, I didn't me a know the point you were getting at with the the hundred pages and the traffic. Okay, there are certain topics that networks won't touch. Right. That uh, independent broadcasters, if they do touch it, it's the third rail. They're they're struck. Okay, they're struck with copyright violations. They're struck with uh, not not use not advertiser friendly, um, or if they get too deep, bad things happen. Okay. Okay. Now. Go back to Michael Bright, uh, or go back to Breitbart, Andrew Breitbart. Think about Andrew Breitbart. Think about that tweet that he sent a few months before his untimely death. Y'all know about that, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm not going to mention any more about that. But, except to say. You don't want to talk about the content of the tweet? Well, the, the content was about how John Podesta is yeah, not a yeah. household name. Uh, yeah. For protection of child trafficking is beyond me. Something along those lines, right? But there is a common, not just a common issue, but a common figure, person, be, uh, among Breitbart, Michael Hastings, and others. In that one fragmented sentence, in that abysmally vomit-like document that I was reading really told me all I needed to know. And that's when the the, uh, fake news label came out. That's when uh, the uh, opposition research began to go into overdrive. Opposition research firms I said all of that to circle back around and to just to let everyone know, Saul Alinsky, the spirit of Saul Alinsky is alive and well within the people who are, who are, uh, attempting to silence all of us. And by any means necessary, I guarantee you they mean by any means necessary. These are not good people. And by the way, the, the very, and I say this with, with a heavy heart, but but nonetheless looking right in your eyes. It's the so-called self-professed, self-anointed Christians. Many of them. Many of them. Many of them. Who are, be, who, who are eyeball deep in this. Who will be quick to say, you know what? That's not you. Um, oh my goodness, you're leading people astray. Or you're all about money. Or you're all about, it's all fake. Or, uh, you're peddling fear porn, or uh, you're quit your wanting, or wh- whatever it might be. Whatever it might be, it is at the epicenter of this one group, especially if you are a Christian and conservative blogger. It is an element of, of the, the Christians, 
or at least those people who call themselves Christians, who are at the at the epicenter, who are propelling this. And it's sad because, and many people are falling for this. Um. So Sean Hannity had spoken a lot, and I think when you read the article on the Hill, and I'm going to be coming out with a, a report on this because this is too important. The, the, the magnitude is so large. The issue is so deep. The people involved, even, okay, so the, the Christian angle was not addressed. The conservative angle was. I, I tell you this, um, the conservatives, of course, most conservatives tend to be, or uh, let me rephrase that, most seekers of the truth tend to be conservatives, at least morally, politically, mostly politically conservative. They don't adhere to the Alinsky or even the uh, broader communist slash uh, Revcom uh, by any means necessary type group groups. So automatically they're on. They got huge bullseyes. We all have huge bullseyes on our backs. But again, you add that Christian element, then you've got the Christians, uh, the self-proclaimed Christians, who say, "Well, you know what? Um, they're going to come after you." And, and I'm saying this, you, the listener, um, as well, saying, well, you're a f- false Christian or whatever. You're using a, a platform of a Christian platform in order to, um, uh, to sell fear and, and all this, which is just bogus. But, but this is the way. What do you mean? We don't sell fear? No. We and, don't and, have it by the bottle? No. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, but see, here's the thing. They will use the existing laws. And, and this is something we have to really understand. They will use the existing laws and make new judicial opinions in order to silence us. That's coming. That's next. Look at Europe. That's next. Look at Europe. The, the hate speech laws. Um, I read, I read the statute yesterday, I believe it was, or Sunday on what constitutes hate speech in Europe. I'd be afraid to have a conversation with anybody. Um, yeah, if, if this program um, being heard in Europe, it's probably not going to be heard in Europe, at least not on any. Um, in, in, you're going to have to kind of get this via podcast or you know some. Yeah, it's our days in Europe, um, at least on the open market, are are yeah, getting few, and that's gonna, that's Canada too. We're um, we only got a few minutes away from the break. Doctor Peter Vincent Pry is going to be joining us after the break. And we are definitely going to be talking more about this attack on the, on conservatives, on the alternative media, um, whether it's from, you know, slanderers or false people who make false accusations or from sponsors. Um, this is definitely, you know, right at the top of our list of things that we need to not only identify, focus on, but identify and then, uh, learn how to, to correct it. Um, but some interesting news I wanted to, to touch on here. Um, many people have been paying attention to what has been going on in Berkeley. Ann Coulter was supposed to be giving a, a speech there on the 27th, which was then canceled by Berkeley over security issues. Well, the she's going there to speak. Um, UC Berkeley yes. readies police as Ann Coulter plans to speak in public plaza on campus. Now, the university is bracing for massive protests on Thursday because this is something that Ann Coulter, uh, as I said, was invited to speak there. The university over security concerns, or so they say, canceled it. 
And Coulter said, well, I'm going to go anyway. And now she's not speaking indoors. She's going to be outdoors. And there are concerns Open of... Open target. Yes, there's concerns of, of violence. Well, there's been an interesting uh, development. Uh, late last week, we reported on HagmanReport.com that the mayor of Berkeley, Berkeley was a member of Antifa. Yes. Well, there's an, an article on Fox News, UC Berkeley riots, violence looms as mayor questioned over his ties to extremist groups. And it goes on to say how Berkeley is once again uh, to be the site of brutal protests on Thursday as questions arise about whether the city's mayors has ties to an extremist group sparking violence. And the, the thing goes through, uh, Ann Coulter's going to be there. But the, what's interesting is law enforcement sources say, regardless of whether Ann Coulter shows up, there's 99% chance that their college will erupt in violence. Either way. And that's self-inflicted, that's orchestrated, we all know mm-hmm. that's planned, and that's their intent, is violence is high on their agenda. Now, the, the sheriff of Berkeley, uh, the, the Los Angeles uh, Sheriff's Department, has been meeting with the local police in Berkeley due to what they the sheriff says was a lackluster response by local police in dealing with violence in the past there. Basically, they said that, you know, the, the police are saying that their their hands were tied. Um, and then they go on to add that um, in the past, protesters felt people, uh, the police did not protect them. At the last riot, many are pledging to defend themselves. People are becoming vigilantes. Well, I, I don't, uh, I find that that uh, That's label the is, a, they is want. a terrible label. Yep. You're not a vigilante if you're defending yourself. But anyway, the, the, the point of this is uh, two things, is that the police there say that, um, that they've been basically told to stand down, more or less, not in those words. But the, the mayor, uh, there's a rift between the Berkeley Police Department and the city government led by uh, Jesse Arguin, the 32-year-old newly elected mayor. Arguin is the um, supporting, has been supporting left-wing violence, and he's also a member of on Facebook of a group called By Any Means Necessary, which is a somebody who it's an anarchist group that is uh, promoting and inciting these violent protests not only in Berkeley but around the country and they are claiming to come out and do it again but we'll talk more about this when we have some open time when we come back Dr. Peter Vincent Pry will be our guest and it's going to be a great show and then Stan Dale will be with us in our number three also uh, there's an interesting story about a judge striking down Donald Trump's uh, sanctuary city defunding executive order. We're going to talk about that and more when we come back. Visit HagmanReport.com for the news and articles that matter most. Stay tuned. We will be right back. In a thrilling series of novels, T.C. Joseph takes us into the lives of three families who struggle to maintain normal lives in a world where conspiracy theory and Bible prophecy collide. 
T.C. Joseph's viewpoint of alternative history and understanding of prophetic events will change your view of the world and the events on our horizon. Kirkus Review states, Readers of End Times Fiction will be hard-pressed to find it done more intriguingly than this. Extremely readable and fast-paced, Blue Week Reviews boldly states, Fans of Tim LaHaye's Left Behind series and Tom Parada's The Leftovers will find this thought-provoking series absolutely riveting. Order your copies of T.C. Joseph's This Generation Series from Amazon.com. Book 1, Precipice. Book 2, Pentecost. And Book 3, Penance. Uncertain times, it makes sense to have a sustainable backup method to cook food and boil water. If your current plan includes using a fuel burning stove or cooking over an open fire, then there's a much better way. The Miniman Rocket Stove is a biomass burning cooking stove that only requires small quantities of sticks and twigs for fuel. The Miniman Stove is easy to use, smokeless, portable, powerful, and sustainable. For the finest in survival cooking stoves and fire starters made right here in the USA, go to MinutemanStove.com. That's MinutemanStove.com. You may never look at your city, town, or its people the same way ever again. Stained by Blood, a murder investigation based upon a true story by private investigator Douglas J. Hagman. Using the character Mark Stiles, Hagman takes you on a journey behind the scenes where the homicide becomes a secondary to an underworld of satanic ritual abuse, child abduction, and even mind-controlled experimentation. A world dismissed as conspiracy by those who want to keep its secrets hidden. Exposing the dangers, denials, and deceptions. For five years, a brutal killer remained on the loose, free to kill again. As Mark struggles to navigate the maze of bizarre twists and untangle a web of deeply hidden secrets kept by some of the most powerful and influential people in this community and beyond. Stained by Blood. Order your copy of this engaging novel today at HagmanandHagman.com and click on the link. Stained by Blood. Television series here in beautiful Northwest Pennsylvania. I want to remind people: a week from Friday, a week from this coming Friday, Gurney, Illinois, Chicago, just north of Chicago. Joe Nye and Russ Bizdar, John Robertson will be there. Awaken to the Shaken. That's right. Awaken to the Shaken conference. We're going to be there in person. Uh, I've got a couple of presentations planned. Joe does as well. John does. Russ Bizdar, of course. And it's going to be a fantastic event conference, if you will. Uh, that we're reaching capacity, and uh, to my understanding, we're reaching capacity. capacity. The the registration to, to attend is free. All you have to do is go to uh, uh, paulbegleyprophecy.com and and find the link to awaken to the shaken and register. I would do that sooner rather than later. Um, it's it's important, and we're going to be talking a lot about. Uh, um, Current events. I'm just going to, well, a couple of events, of course, is going to be in, in the human trafficking aspect of things and the findings as they relate to 
entities, groups, individuals, uh, landscape over the last several months based on citizens' research and journalism, uh, journalists who have outed uh, many of the, uh, uh, well, many of the people and subjects uh, with respect to the subject, as well as the threat from within by the, uh, by the Islamic, uh, element and, uh, how the, uh, how the mosques in this country are acting as uh, points of sedition in my view anyway uh, as, as kind of a Trojan horse so it's going to be a, an information packed weekend of course Russ always pleases um, now having said that Dr. Peter Vincent Pry is our guest uh, Eric is he, we ready to go? Beautiful and folks you might remember Dr. Pry from, from some time ago here on this program I don't have the exact date in front of me I, as usual I left that note uh, it elsewhere yeah, and and I'm going to tell you something. I could listen to Dr. Peter Vincent Pry probably not just hours, but days. Um, FamilySecurityMatters.org yeah. is the website. FamilySecurityMatters.org. And, um, Dr. He's a contributing editor for that, the executive director of the Task Force of National Homeland uh, Security and director of the U.S. Nuclear Strategy Forum. Go ahead. Uh, Dr. Pry, welcome back to the Hagman and Hagman Report. Well, thank you so much for having me. Now, I'll tell you what, uh, Dr. Pry, if there was ever a time, a moment in history, if there was ever, uh, when your expertise would be necessary uh, as an, well, to provide an analysis of what's taking place, uh, the program description for tonight, of course, is the uh, asymmetrical uh, warfare. That's uh, asymmetric, asymmetric art of war. Uh, where do you want to start? Because there's just so much going on. I mean, you could you could start anywhere and be relevant. It seems like. Yes, I've never seen. Uh, I've spent my whole life uh, in the national security area, and um, when I began in the CIA at the height of the Cold War, uh, and then saw the collapse of the Soviet Union, the rise of Russia, the rise of new threats. Uh, I've never seen a national security environment more unstable and more dangerous than the one we face today. And as we speak I, yeah. tomorrow, you know, the uh, unprecedented act of the White House calling in the entire U.S. Senate, all 100 senators to the White House, you know, for a briefing on North Korea, you know, we're approaching or past the 100th day. It's actually been an ongoing protracted nuclear crisis with North Korea ever since their third illegal nuclear test back in 2013. The press has described us in the 100th day of a crisis with North Korea. It's actually been a crisis that's gone on now since 2013 with North Korean dictator regularly threatening to make nuclear missile strikes on the United States. Uh, And North Korea isn't the only one. Uh, well, Dr. Pry, while you're on the subject of North Korea, one of the questions I, I really want to ask you, who sold us out? Who sold the technology? Who provided the technology to North Korea, um, in your view? Uh, I mean, oh, well, how did they get to this view. point? It's, okay. it's, a, it's, a, it's a fact. You can actually see it. Uh, you know, uh, the Russians and Chinese, the, uh, the two most of the uh, longer-range missiles, that uh, the North Koreans have, the so-called Musadon, which is their meteor, me, intermediate-range ballistic missile, and their two road-mobile ICBMs, 
the KN-08 and KN-14, are both based on Russia's SSM-6 Serb. It was a uh, sub submarine launch ballistic missile that, uh, that with the help of Russians who are actually in North Korea and Chinese, there are Russians and Chinese scientists and engineers in North Korea helping them with their program. And uh, they've souped up the SSN-6 so it can reach us. That's a basically a Russian missile. The sub-launch ballistic missile program, the submarines, are derived from uh, about a dozen Gulf-class Russian ballistic missile submarines that Russia sold to them some years ago to North Korea, supposedly for scrap. And we are so stupid and naive. I mean, the Obama administration let them get away with that as if, as if that was really going to happen, like they were going to really use those submarines for scrap. It's entirely foreseeable what they were going to do. You know, they were going to start turning them into a ballistic missile submarine fleet. Those road mobile ICBMs I had told you about, they're riding on Russian, I mean, excuse me, on Chinese uh, transporter erector launchers. You know, the people describe them as trucks. A, a, they're a lot more sophisticated than that. Uh, a, a transporter erector launcher, so-called TAL, is a huge and sophisticated piece of equipment because it has to carry an intercontinental ballistic missile, and then be able to elevate it to launch and uh, stabilize the missile in such a way so that it'll still be accurate. All of that's very complicated to do. And, uh, you know, the Chinese uh, basically sold the TELs to North Korea. And we've recovered parts of North Korean missiles. This has been in the press. I mean, this is not classified, what I'm telling you. You know, when we found that the uh, the parts are... Our, our, our technology that have been uh, have been coming in from China, including from Western Europe, but purchased by Chinese and North Korean front companies operating in China and going to uh, going to North Korea. And, and this is why. And I've been I feel kind of like a voice in the wilderness here because uh, uh, you know for years I've been telling, trying to to, to to tell people that there is no China card. You know. For 25 years, administration after administration, including now the current administration, you know, has chased this will of the wisp that if we can only convince China, you know, to lean on North Korea, that we can solve this problem. You know, but North Korea is a problem to us because China wants it to be. You know, China and Russia have both enabled North Korea to pose this threat to us for geostrategic reasons. This is asymmetric warfare at its highest level. Normally, when we think of asymmetric warfare, we think of uh, technologies like cyber attack or EMP attack. But another form of asymmetric warfare is what's going on with North Korea, where you've got this great power chess game going on, and North Korea is the pawn, and it's being put out there to, to basically threaten the existing world order, which is based on U.S military power and credibility and our willingness to be the, the global sheriff, as it were, and to confront us with this scary actor who is uh, so unstable and so dangerous that they're hoping the United States will will abandon its security commitments to, the, to, the, uh, to our allies in Japan and South Korea and elsewhere, or that they will abandon us because they're afraid that we will not uphold our security guarantees to them. And that's what this game is all about. It's really, you know, North Korea is, the cat, is a cat's paw for Russia and China. And even if we are able to resolve the North Korean problem,
problem through negotiation. It's going to cost us. So Russia and China really can't lose, especially China. We will have to pay them something in order to resolve the North Korean problem peacefully. Blackmail. If, if they're willing to resolve it peacefully at all. They may not be. In, in, in fact, given the history, they won't be because they have much bigger... They're after a very high stakes, you know, instead of uh, 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 having a strategic partnership with the United States where, you know, where they, uh, I could imagine, for example, one way of offering this is, no, have you noticed how we're not com- complaining anymore about China's encroachment on the South China Sea, you know, True. which is one of the yeah. most important, perhaps the most important waterway in the world. Not only is it rich in oil resources and claimed by multiple countries, you know, but it's it's one of the greatest, perhaps the greatest uh, transportation artery in the whole world because because the trade from from Asia and the Middle East and 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 Europe too that passes through the Suez Canal passes through the South China Sea and uh, goes to North America and South America and to Japan and the Koreas and and. China will basically own that. That's why we have been, you know, we were challenging China's encroachment and island building in the South China Sea. But, you know, we're sort of capable of only focusing on one crisis at a time. But right now, you know, we're not complaining at all about China's presence in the South China Sea. Is it conceived, is it possible that a deal will be struck where we surrender the South China Sea to China? in exchange for them supposedly leaning on North Korea or promises that they will lean on North Korea. And then uh, if history repeats itself here, what will happen is we will go into negotiations. Uh, Promises will be made about constraints on the North Korean nuclear program. Uh, Concessions will be made, including to China. China will put the concessions in its pocket. And nothing will happen with North Korea, and the North Korean threat will get even bigger. That's what I predict is, is going to happen if we're lucky. I mean, if the benign outcome happens, you know, the bad outcome is a, is a war with North Korea, possibly escalating into a world war. Oh, okay. To, to hear you say this from your experience, and, of course, uh, folks, Dr. Peter Vincent Pry, former analyst for the CIA, Served in the House Services Committee, credentials, just unbelievably great credentials. An analyst understands the threat better than anyone. Author of uh, three books, uh, Blackout Wars, Apocalypse, Apocalypse Unknown, being two right now, uh, of course, on, available on Amazon. Uh, you understand this. So, okay, um, you, that's the best case scenario, or the most benign scenario that you see playing out. And that that's not a cakewalk, obviously. Well, miracles are possible. You know, it could be, and I hope I am wrong. I hope China really has had a change of heart, and that because that is the narrative in the mainstream press that that the meeting, the the cruise missile strikes in Syria, have uh, and the and the aircraft carrier group moving toward North Korea. Uh, you know, the possibility that Trump might actually make a preemptive strike in North Korea, that this uh, has sobered the Chinese and brought them to their senses. And, uh, and, the, and the press, some in the press, 
are even saying that China's moving 150,000 troops to the North Korean border and Russia moving an army into Siberia, which has happened. Mm. That this is being done to support us, you know, in case we decide to to, to preempt North Korea, uh, that they will either support us or at least that they will stop the North Korean refugees from flowing into their territories across the border. Uh, the border. Right. You know, but the last time China mobilized an army and put it on the North Korean border, it was the Korean War, and right. it wasn't done to support us. It was done to support their ally. North Korea, and uh, you know, to throw us back from the Yellow River because they considered it to be a uh, 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 one of the, in their in their a vital national interest of theirs that they support their client state North Korea that they could not tolerate a U.S. ally South Korea or U.S. Army being really right on their border. And I don't think China has changed its uh, its. It's calculus of what its geostrategic and geopolitical interests are. You know, I think uh, uh, this is why intelligence is important. You know, uh, understanding the real situation awareness. Sure. I hope we're not making decisions on the naive assumption that China and Russia are, are on our side against North Korea and that they are going to support us if we preempt North Korea. Uh, and it's entirely possible, I think likely, you know, that their reaction will be just the opposite, uh, that they aren't going to support us. You know, they might even, they might even go to war against us. Or they might, they might just make sure that the, uh, they might, they may, might remain neutral, uh, and, and hope that North Korea throws a couple nukes around. Maybe takes out an American city, maybe takes out a Japanese city, maybe takes out a South Korean city. Because if that happens, that will be such a high price for all of our countries to pay, or just takes out one city in any of these countries, that I think it would shatter uh, the Western alliance in the Pacific. You know, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't think, uh, you know, that would be such a sobering experience. Americans are very, having come out of two lost Middle Eastern wars, um, we're sort of in another post-Vietnam syndrome period where Americans are understandably sick and tired of sending their sons and daughters off to die in foreign wars for strange geostrategic reasons that are not entirely comprehensible, you know, or difficult uh, yeah. to understand. Yeah. And uh, uh, there's, uh, uh, on both the left and the right, um, uh, there is a great many who would like us to go into a posture of isolationism. And, uh, you know, and stop being the world policeman. Uh, 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 and that's exactly what China and Russia want. Well, I you know, think, they want to win. Dr. Pry, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, I, I'd like to get your take on this. Do you think that, that our leadership has squandered the goodwill, good nature, uh, and willingness of the American people, uh, based on the foreign entanglements that we've seen over the last I don't know, 25, 50 years. Uh, I absolutely do. I, okay. I absolutely do. I think, look at, you know, I'm no fan of Obama, all right? Uh, you know, I think he was one of the worst presidents we ever had. Uh, and uh, and a rosy-colored hue has started to surround George W. Bush because Obama was such a bad president, you know? But... Uh, 
the Bush administration was not a good presidency either in, ter- in terms of in terms of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. You know, uh, when I supported those wars, and I did support them, you know, the purpose was to punish those countries, uh, to punish the terrorist governments that were basically in, in charge of those countries, to give them a bloody nose, to hopefully kill their leadership to take revenge for the 9-11 attacks and to, call, and, to uh, and to cripple their militaries and then to get out you know we did the right thing for the first six months of both of those wars the decision by the Department of State when President Bush was persuaded by Condoleezza Rice and Colin Powell and the Washington Post and the New York Times to uh, to stay and reconstruct those countries and try to build them into democracies. That turned them into two Vietnams. We snatched defeat out of the jaws of victory. You know, had the United States done what it originally intended to do, you know, and just gone in there, given them a bloody nose, taken out the leadership, crippled their militaries, and then gotten out, you know, uh, the the whole geostrategic future would have been very different. You know, America's credibility would not be as diminished as it is now. The morale of the American people would not be diminished as it is now. The wars would not have been as costly to us in treasure and lives as as they have turned out to be. We took almost no casualties in the first six months. All the casualties came later when we were trying to reconstruct and and pursue the neocon dream, you know, of spreading democracy in the Middle East, you know, which was a chaotic enterprise. You know, there has there was never any history of democracy in any of those countries. They are in the Middle Ages. They are they never went through the Enlightenment and uh and uh, uh the history that the West had to it took centuries, you know, for the Western democracies to become Western democracies. And none of those Middle Eastern countries have gone through that history. You know, there was no realistic prospect of turning them into functioning democracies. Uh, so it was a, a futile effort that was fated to lose. And uh, just like in Vietnam, you know, we ended up fighting against guerrilla forces who uh, would hide among the population or cross a border and hide in Pakistan. Uh, and, uh, and for various reasons, you know, they had these protected zones. And, and so it became... Uh, you know, inevitable that uh, there wasn't. They were there were unwinnable wars. You know, we we took we decided to, and it was the president's decision to, to to put us into that situation. You know, we had won the wars, and then and then threw that victory away by making this this foolish decision. You know, to try to bring democracy to Afghanistan and Iraq. And it turned them into unwinnable wars. So I, I, I mean, I supported what the original goals of the wars had been, but uh, not the decision to stay there. And um, uh, uh, and the president was warned uh, that that he was going to destroy his presidency. And not only did he destroy his presidency, but uh, you know, we we lost we lost both we lost both houses of Congress, and uh, it, it, that's why Obama got elected. You know, because it wrecked the economy. You know, well, the wars didn't, alone didn't wreck the economy. There were other bad decisions, but um, the disasters in the foreign policy, combined with the bad economy, ended up delivering the country into the hands of Obama 
and uh, and uh, and the Democratic Party for eight years, and you know it's been we've gone even further downhill under for, for the past eight years. So not now, uh, you know, we stand at a threshold where this. Uh, I mean, to really comprehend it, you know, there was a book written at the end of the Cold War, you know, in 1991 by Francis Fukuyama called The End of History. Yep. And many people believed, it looked at that time, like the end of history was true, that the long twilight struggle, you know, between democracy and totalitarianism had finally been won by the United States. You know, that here we stood, the apex of power, having defeated the Soviet Union without firing a shot. Amazing. It was miraculous. And not only that, but we seem to have won the ideological contest, too. And Fukuyama predicted, and m- m- most people believed, you know, that the future belonged to freedom, to free political institutions, to free economic systems, and people were going to follow the model of the United States and wanted to implement that model. That's where we stood in 1991. And there was, uh, and Fukuyama called it the end of history, because throughout history, up until that point, the, the history of man had been this struggle between authoritarian and totalitarian systems versus free systems, democracies. With democracies usually not winning in the long struggle, okay? But we had won, and and Fukuyama was declaring the long contest over. Now look where we are. Freedom is on retreat everywhere. Uh, you know, uh, the United States is. Uh, economically and militarily hollow at this point and we face threats to our existence not just from one actor like the Soviet Union but from multiple actors uh, Russia China North Korea Iran global terrorism you know five actors uh, uh who I believe are actually acting in concert. Uh, you know, uh, they have a tacit alliance. Uh, the enemy of my enemy being my friend. Uh, my friend. They have different ideologies, but all of them are totalitarian or authoritarian states united against the leader of freedom, the United States. And uh, uh, and we're facing this right now. I mean, tomorrow. This is going to be an interesting meeting in the White House, but. Um, uh, this is one of the decisive battles, uh, and it, it could, uh, this conflict, this, this, or confrontation, it's not a conflict yet, but this confrontation with North Korea, you know, this is a gambit that Russia and China have set up, a trap they have set up for years, uh, uh, bringing North Korea to this point, you know, where it could pose an existential threat to the United States and its allies, you know, and, uh, uh, and now we have woken up to the point where we realize we've got to do something about it. You know, that logically we shouldn't be, have to live with this situation. We can't live with this situation. I'm, I'm afraid that our elites may convince themselves that we can get along and live with this situation, even the North Korea armed with nuclear weapons. Because um, the great hubris of the Western democracies has always been our, our irrational and limitless faith in the ability to negotiate peace with anyone and over anything. Mm. And I call that hubris, you know, because, because it's not true. You know, there are times when you have to fight. Uh, 
We should have listened, learned that lesson. And the great generation did learn that lesson. You know, the great generation learned that lesson from World War II. Sure. You know, when you look at the Western democracies, we even convinced ourselves that Adolf Hitler, Nazi Germany, fascist Italy, and imperial Japan were open to reason and that we could negotiate peace with them even after Hitler took the Rhineland and Austria and Czechoslovakia. There was still a belief that war could be avoided and we could negotiate a peace with them. And uh, it was almost too late. We Dr. Waited Pye, almost too late. We're, we're up against the top of the hour network break. we got about three minutes during, uh, for the break. Uh, so when we come back after the three-minute break, we're going to continue where we left off. In the meantime, folks, Dr. Peter Vincent Pry. I want you to go to the Family Security Matters, folks. FamilySecurityMatters.org. Two articles written, uh, co-authored uh, by our guest tonight with Ambassador James Wolseley, the North Korean War Scare, as well as um, how North Korea could kill 90% of Americans. Yeah, and I believe that one's with the EMP threat. Yeah, again, our guest, Dr. Peter Vincent Pry. He's going to be with us through the next hour. FamilySecurityMatters.org is the website. We will be right back. Don't go anywhere. Greenovative. Go to HagmanReport.com. Click on the link to Greenovative. What Greenovative is? It's a small company in Florida. They created something called the GMAG Power Cell. It produces electricity by adding salt water to this unit that recharges rechargeable batteries. It's the coolest thing you'll ever see in your life. It's really neat. Really a, a super device. All right, you need just two teaspoons of ordinary table salt, a little water, but a thing you're charging your rechargeable batteries. Super GMAG chargeable is affordable, it's lightweight, weighs about 8 ounces, it's durable, it's EMP proof, and it's environmentally friendly. Yeah, that it is. It'll provide safe and convenient power for recharging uh, 6 AA batteries off the grid when other power sources aren't available anywhere, anytime, in any weather, day or night. Go to greenovative.com. That's greenovative.com. Folks, in these uncertain times, it just makes sense to have a sustainable backup method for accomplishing one of life's most important tasks, that's preparing food. This is the way to go. There is nothing better than a Minuteman rocket stove from MinutemanStove.com. We all need a way to cook and a method to process water. I mean, think about it. Think about the many things that could happen to you. A Minuteman rocket stove can provide your family or group the perfect solution. It's small, lightweight, wood-burning, and every bit as powerful as a kitchen stove. It's smoke fully self-contained for clean storage and transport. Because it's so efficient, it cuts down on your wood gathering and processing chores to a tenth what would be required if cooking the old-fashioned way over an open fire. So don't rely on gas for fuel stoves. Prepare your family. Prepare for yourself. Order a Minuteman rocket stove today. It's going to make bad times much better. Folks, MinutemanStove.com. MinutemanStove.com. Need I say more? You should have a Minuteman, the survival stove in an M.O.K. 
For investors, timberland has become the symbol of safety. Global tropical timber demand continues to surge as the world's population increases. The need for managed, sustainable timber production forests has never been greater. When stock markets crash, trees keep growing. Direct ownership of fully managed tropical timberland acreage is now available to accredited investors. Prime, valuable hardwood groves close to the beautiful Costa Rican border generate and maintain superior long-term wealth. Consider visiting our forest plantations. Qualified, accredited investors should go to PreciousTimberProfits.com or dial 855-888-6288 for more information. Call 855-888-6288 or visit PreciousTimberProfits.com. This announcement does not constitute either an offer to sell securities or a solicitation of an offer to purchase. Offering made by prospectus only. 855-888-6288, PreciousTimberProfits.com. PreciousTimberProfits.com. Our guest this hour is Dr. Peter Vincent Pry. Go to his website, FamilySecurityMatters.org. That's FamilySecurityMatters.org. And check out his books on Amazon, Blackout Wars, Apocalypse Unknown, Electric Armageddon, and more. And um, The Long Sunday, uh, which talks about a nuclear EMP attack scenarios. And that's something that we uh, are facing as a threat uh, from this conflict in North Korea. Dr. Pry, I want to ask you this question coming out of the gate. Um, the conflict between the U.S. and North Korea uh, could lead to a war, uh, a hard war between you know, the U.S. and China or Russia. In my personal view, I would I see more uh, economic uh, sanctions and other things that, that these countries would do rather than uh, engage in a full military battle with the United States. Do you think that uh, that's accurate, that the the threat of hard war would be off the table over North Korea, or do you believe that they would um, not hesitate to, to go to war with the U.S. over North Korea? I think they would hesitate to go to war with the United States over North Korea, but I certainly don't think that they would resort to, uh, that they would use economic sanctions or economic leverage. Uh, Russia doesn't have economic leverage, uh, right. that it can use over the United States. China does. Um, uh, uh, but I think, I think there's a very good chance that they would, that they would go to war, that they would engage the United States because it's possible that this gambit that they've set up, uh, has pre-planned for that contingency, that that's what they want to happen. The last thing the United States needs right now is to get involved in a World War III against China and Russia and North Korea. And it would probably involve Iran and Syria as well, who who are allied, tapped allies of both Russia and China. You know, our you know, our economy is a wreck. Our military is hollow. You know, we've never been in a weaker position to engage in a large scale war. America needs peace right now. We need a time to rebuild our economy. We need time to rebuild our military strength. You know, so that we can deter these actors or win a conflict if we get involved with a conflict. I don't think we could win a war against all this combination of actors. You know, North Korea is right in China's backyard, and it's virtually an 
in, in, in Russia's backyard. Uh, you know, we have to project power all the way across the Pacific. And uh, unlike us, you know, they're willing to resort to the use of weapons of mass destruction right from the get-go, including nuclear EMP attack, you know, which could, at a blow, do exactly what Kim Jong-un has been threatening. It could, it could destroy. You could, with an EMP attack, potentially destroy our, our aircraft carrier group. Or you could destroy this whole country with an EMP attack from one of its satellites or from an ICBM. And uh, that would collapse our military capabilities there. You know, we haven't defended our critical infrastructures against EMP or cyber warfare or sabotage. And, uh, you know, we've been talking about asymmetric warfare from the point of view of the largest kind of asymmetric warfare, uh, the geostrategic kind, where North Korea is being used as a pawn in this global chess game by Russia and China. And when you think it through, it's really hard to see how they can lose. You know, uh, uh, if it came to a hard war, I think they would win. If it came to, if it comes to uh, uh, a limited war, uh, it's hard to imagine a limited war where, let's say, they stay out of it, and we're and we're preempting the North Korean nuclear programs. I think that North Korea would, at minimum, be able to do tremendous damage to uh, South Korea and Japan, and probably to the United States too. They would be. I think they'd be able to reach out and do some tremendous damage to the United States too. And while we might win, quote unquote, we might, you know, be able to uh, to destroy the North Korean nuclear program. The price that would be paid for that it would be a pyrrhic victory. You know, I think in the aftermath of that so-called victory, uh Japan and South Korea and the American people would regard the price of that victory as so unacceptably high that um, we would probably retreat into isolationism, and the South Koreans and Japanese would see Russia and China as uh, as uh, as better protectors than the United States, and that their wow. interests, their national security interests, would be better served by aligning themselves with Russia and China and becoming client states of these actors instead of relying on the United States. Uh, their involvement with us having resulted in a in a terrible new North Korean war that caused damage to themselves. So I would see us losing in that scenario. Uh, let's say there is no war at all, and it's negotiated, and we go to negotiations. Uh, uh, and this could be the greatest defeat of all. You know, if the negotiations fail to disarm North Korea, and we continue this 20, 25-year pattern of negotiating to no purpose, and the North Korean program, the nuclear program, continues to advance, you know, we're just at that point. The reason it's being taken so seriously, you know, is uh, uh, there's still the military possibility of disarming North Korea. They haven't got that many ICBMs yet. You know, it's a small number. Uh, they do have a lot of medium-range ballistic missiles, so we probably would not be able to disarm all of those. But the ICBMs, they could threaten our homeland directly. And they've only got the two satellites up, you know, so that we, even if those are nuclear-armed, we we could still take them out. But we're just at the threshold where if they get a little stronger, North Korea will become irreversible as a nuclear weapons state, and it'll be too late to try to reverse the fact of a nuclear-armed North Korea by war. And then we'll have to try living with a nuclear-armed North Korea. 
And that peace, that so-called peace, I think would be fatal to the geostrategic balance and world order that is built on American security guarantees because they would no longer be credible. They would no longer be credible. You know, Japan and South Korea and our allies in the Philippines all understand that the United States could not rationally be willing to trade Los Angeles or San Francisco for Seoul or Tokyo. Uh, Certainly, we're not willing to trade losing 90% of our population to an EMP attack to, uh, to uphold our national security guarantees to South Korea and Japan. So our security guarantees would no longer be, by cold calculation, militarily credible. And that would undo the alliance. That would undo the existing world order. And we would be standing at the threshold of a new world order, which would be dominated by Russia, China, North, and their client states, North Korea, Iran, uh, uh, and uh and as Sun Tzu says, you know, the greatest victory, the best victory, is one where you do not have to fight a war. And that perhaps is the most likely outcome, where we basically do nothing, negotiations being doing nothing, and uh, and uh, lose the opportunity to, uh, to save this existing world order, to uphold security guarantees. And uh, uh, it would be... It would be a transition in world history as stark and as dangerous, I think, uh, as the uh, end of the Pax Romana, uh, the fall of the Roman Empire that then introduced the new Dark Ages. That's what a change in world order means. It's not some just some hypothetical political science idea. It has real human and historic consequences, uh, usually terrible consequences. uh, EMP especially brings on the prospect of a literally a new dark ages that turns out the lights in, in America or overall, uh, over, over the whole world if it becomes a hard war uh, it opens the door to the new barbarians who are these totalitarian and authoritarian states you know represented by Russia, China, North Korea and Iran and the terrorists and the, and the terrorists what a change from Francis Fukuyama's end of history, where we saw this this road that was leading to the bright uplands of freedom for all humanity. And here, not that much, many years later, we, we find ourselves standing on the precipice of a new Dark Ages. You're right. From uh, Fukuyama's uh, optimistic screed uh, to, to, to where we're at right now, different, and it's rather humiliating to me uh, as an American just to see where we're at. So just to be clear in my mind, and then I know, Joe, if you have a question, but just to be clear in my mind, the alternative to, well, okay, uh, there's a chance we could work this out, but we're going to be on the losing end, essentially, uh, of a geopolitical chess game to because over North Korea to the client um, or to the states of, nation states of uh, Russia and China, ultimately. Alternatively, we could be facing a war the war, the conflict, whatever you want to call it, could very well be asymmetrically, tactically uh, performed. And uh, you're looking at an EMP cyber attack kind of thing, is what you're saying, if I'm hearing this correctly. Yes, that's right. Uh, one of the other, let's talk now, we've been talking about asymmetrical warfare at the level of geostr- uh, geostrategy. Let's talk about 
on the, the battlefield of asymmetric warfare or the operational level, uh, and that is this new way of warfare that the Russians, the Chinese, the North Koreans, it's really all patterned after the Russians. You know, uh, General Vladimir Slavchenko, uh, who uh, basically wrote, literally wrote the book called No Contact Wars. It's a military textbook taught in the General Staff Academy and all the military textbooks in China and Iran and as practiced by North Korea all mirror, all reflect Slavchenko's original idea. And um, it's a, uh, a new way of warfare that they consider, and I think they're right, you know, the greatest revolution in military affairs in history. Um, what do they mean by revolution in military affairs? So let's go back to our World War II analogy again. You know, when Nazi Germany came up with the Blitzkrieg strategy, very few people in the Western democracy has understood this new way of war that involved the coordinated use of armor and air power and fast-moving infantry and moving artillery to restore movement to the battlefield so that you could win wars very quickly. And, um, you know, the Western democracies, for the most part, with the exception of a handful of people like Winston Churchill and Major General J.F.C. Fuller, who tried to warn the West, but they were not listened to, uh, came up with this idea that most of the general staffs in the West thought World War II would be fought the way World War I was, and that the dominant technologies were going to be barbed wire and the trench and the machine gun, and so they would be static wars, and the aggressor would be at a big disadvantage. Well, technology, the clever, brilliant, ingenious use of technology by the Germans on land and by the Japanese at sea by the introduction of aircraft carriers, which some of us also first saw, you know, uh, uh, but not enough to to change the mind of the U.S. Navy or the British Admiralty, you know, uh, gave the advantage to the aggressor, tremendous advantage to the aggressor, so that the Nazis and the Japanese came within one small step of winning World War II, but a series of miracles prevented that, fortunately. Now, this new way of warfare is called many things by many nations. Uh, Slipchenko calls it no contact war. The Chinese call it total information warfare or all-out cyber warfare. Some people in the U.S. Army War College call it cyber cybergeddon. I call it blackout war, you know, because that's the essence of it. The idea is that you, you don't attack the other guy's military directly. You attack the technological Achilles heel of nations, which is the electric grid, because everything everything depends on electricity. We're electronic civilizations now, and if you can collapse the electric grid, you'll collapse all the life-sustaining critical infrastructures, transportation, communications, banking and finance, industry, even food and water depend directly or indirectly on electricity. So if you can collapse that electric grid, and cause these other critical infrastructures to crash, you will paralyze the military forces of the other side and win the war very decisively in a very short period of time, perhaps in 24 hours. That's why they consider it the greatest revolution in military affairs in history. That's why Slavchenko calls it no-contact wars, because you could defeat a military superpower like the United States that has so many technological advantages in its military forces, you could defeat them without even having to go, in, go to battle with our military. In effect, it renders armies and 
air forces and navies obsolete. And you don't have to be a great power to conduct this war. If you're a failed state like North Korea, you know, all you need is uh, the ability to conduct a cyber war that could take down the electric grid, or the ability to introduce enough saboteurs to take down the electric grid, or just one atomic weapon so that you could do a EM, nuclear EMP attack, which would take down the electric grid. And ideally, under the, uh, the, the, the new way of warfare, envisions coordinating attacks by all of these means, all of these means, using, using uh, cyber and sabotage, non-nuclear radiofrequency weapons, and nuclear EMP attack being the ultimate cyber weapon by their doctrine. All of this designed to collapse the electric grid and the critical infrastructures and bring the nation to its knees. And there's never been a time in history when a failed state like North Korea or a failed state like Iran or even non-state actors like ISIS and Al-Qaeda could, could destroy the most sophisticated civilizations on Earth, which they could by this means, this new way of warfare, which is sort of a super offensive war. You know, he who strikes first using these means has got a tremendous advantage over the other side, you know, because it's so hard to defend against it. Um, and that's, that's the, that's Man, the ultimate... You make some good points. I don't, I don't mean to interrupt. I just want to kind of give you a heads up. We are going to uh, uh, bypass our bottom of the hour break because uh, I don't want to interrupt. We don't want to interrupt your continuity of thought. And, and folks, our guest, Dr. Peter Vincent Pry, you know, people, there are people out there um, and people within our government who, who pay a lot of money to listen to this man's opinions and listen to him talk. Here he is giving you the information flat out tonight on on our platform and we are so thankful that he has uh, given his gracious gift of time so we're not going to uh, sully up or, or mess up his continuity of thought uh, any longer outside of my interruption with a bottom of the hour network break uh, dr pry we are just so thankful that you you're, you're giving this information and, and please show you folks uh do yourself a favor go to amazon uh, Dr. Peter Vincent Pry, Blackout Wars, uh, Apocalypse Unknown and others, and as well as Family Security Matters. We have to keep, uh, we have to inform our neighbors, we have to inform our people, we have to inform our Congress people. Dr. Pry, again, my apologies for the interruption, but I just want to make sure I notified you that we're just going to continue right forward. And, uh, just to say thank you again, and I, I promise I won't, <laughs> I won't interrupt you anymore. Well, please feel free to. I, and thank you for having me. Uh, it's a, uh, it's not a pleasant subject to discuss. And, uh, you and all of the people who are listening tonight, I'm so grateful that you are, are listening, willing to listen. You know, you on this network and your, our listeners are, are the new Minutemen in this 21st century age of cyber warfare. The first step toward, toward defending ourselves and achieving victory over these adversaries is by understanding the threat. And everybody who comes to understand the threat becomes part of the solution. So you on this radio station and all of your listeners become part of the solution, even if in a small way, so that at least we we are a democracy. And uh, having this knowledge enables us collectively to hopefully make the right decisions and the right choices. And there are things people can do. You know, all of the, uh, all of the, all of the solutions 
do not have to come out of Washington and should not come out of Washington. You know, the founders did not envision that Washington would run this country. Uh, you know, people who are constitutionalists and are familiar with our history know that the way the founders envisioned this country is that most of the of governance was supposed to be done at the level of the states. And it has been my experience, and I have to admit that I'm a creature of Washington, but as a creature of Washington, I, I, I freely and gladly admit that the further away you get from Washington, the more common sense you find in governance. The closer you get to the people, the more effective and more commonsensical government is. As an example of this, when the EMP commission on which I served uh, terminated in 2008, you know, it had made a list of over 100 recommendations to protect our electric grid and other critical infrastructures from the very threats that I am describing. Because it, it is possible to defend against them. And uh, for eight years, Washington did nothing. Uh, and in frustration, I, I took my task force, I talked to other members of Congress who shared my concerns, and they gave me permission to go to the states. And the first state we went to was Maine. Uh, there was a, a, a Democrat, a, a lady named Andrea Boland, who actually reached out to us and, and said, let's try to do this in the state of Maine. Uh, and uh, we went and spoke to the Maine state legislature. Nobody there had heard about EMP or even knew anything about it. And at first they thought we were crazy. You know, but my team had an opportunity to brief them and to explain the threats and the situation and what the solution was. It took only six months to get a bill passed through the state legislature, through the House unanimously, an overwhelming majority in the Senate, and the governor signed it into law in six months. We went from from a state legislature that knew nothing about EMP to six months later having a bill to protect the main electric grid pass and be signed into law. And in eight years, in contrast, Washington had done nothing for eight years. Now, fortunately, Washington finally did do some big, important thing just last year, the last possible legislative minute in 2016. Literally, at the last minute, they finally passed the Critical Infrastructure Protection Act, you know, which is the best big step forward toward getting our grid protected. It's, it's not going to solve the whole problem, but it's a really good and promising start. I just fear that it's, it, I hope it's not too little too late. You know, our solutions and the, the pace at which we're moving to protect ourselves is, is certainly not keeping up with the threat. I mean, it's certainly not keeping up with the threat when tomorrow we are in such a crisis with North Korea that we have this unprecedented meeting of the entire U.S. Senate, the entire Senate in the White House to be briefed on the North Korean threat. Um, so I don't know. I mean, if we ended up having a war with North Korea and they made an EMP attack this year, it would certainly be too late. You know, we need more time sure. to get our country protected. Do, do, do you see that? And I'm just curious. Um, I, and I, I think we might have had this discussion last time, and, and certainly I wouldn't hold you to any um, any specific answer, but I, I, was, I was just really trying to run through some scenarios, and I, I talked with some others uh within the, within the framework of DHS and I'm just curious 
uh, how would you see, uh, you got the meeting tomorrow, very critical. But let's say North Korea decides, okay, they're feeling froggy, they're going to leap. Would it be, in your estimation, based on your analysis, would it be the U.S. mainland, would it be China, would it be South Korea? And if it's the U.S. mainland, uh, would it be from, I mean, what would it look like, I guess, if you gave this out? I'm most concerned about their satellites, and I think it would be the U.S. mainland. And I think they, I think the North Korea would, would, would do a simultaneous strike against the United States, South Korea, and Japan. I, they'd use no-dongs against Japan and South Korea. That's their medium-range ballistic missile. Uh, and they'd use their satellites against us. And they'd probably try to launch, you know, their ICBMs and hope that a few of their ICBMs could reach the United States too, you know, possibly to, to blast cities in the old in the old-fashioned way. But the satellites are what worry me most. They uh, are on a south polar trajectory, uh, and it's, we don't know what's on those satellites. But it's possible that they've got a super EMP weapon on those satellites. Uh, Russian generals who uh, that were Russia's top experts in EMP demarched the EMP commission in 2004 to warn us that the design for their super EMP weapon had accidentally, quote-unquote, leaked to North Korea, and that in a few years, North Korea could build this and test it. And just like clockwork, just as the Russians predicted, in a few years later, in 2006, the North Koreans conducted their first nuclear test. The world declared it a failure, because it was only one to three kilotons. But that's very precisely the yield that a... uh, a super EMP weapon would look like because it's not designed to create a big explosion. It's designed to put out gamma rays, which is what causes the high-frequency EMP effect, the most damaging kind of EMP, the kind that can stop cars, make airplanes crash, take down SCADAs, and destroy not only the electric grid, but all the critical infrastructures. Everything depends on that depends on electricity, including the personal computer on your desk. The... Uh, these uh, weapons are are small. They're lightweight. Uh, they resemble a nuclear artillery, uh, a, a neutron nuclear artillery shell, such as we deployed, uh, so-called enhanced radiation warhead that uh, the Carter administration had uh, deployed to NATO. Uh, you know, they weigh less than 100 pounds, so they could easily fit on one of these satellites. And if I, so the North Koreans would, uh, if they decide to go to war, Kim Jong Un is a huge gambler. You know, I don't think he would. I don't think he would hit lightly. I don't think he'd go for limited nuclear options or warning shots. I think he would. He would, he would roll the dice and he'd try to take everybody out, because if there was a war, you know, he would assume uh, uh, correctly that we're going to try to kill him and we're going to try to destroy his regime. We practiced trying to take him out. You know, these exercises we just conducted in March. That was part of the scenario to take out part the North Korean leadership in addition to preempting, you know, their nuclear capabilities. So he would, uh, you know, he'd be doing everything in his power to destroy us before we destroyed him. And uh, that's why, I, uh, and uh, there would be no second chance. He'd n- he knows that, you know, we have so much power, he'd have no s- opportunity for striking second. He would try to, and hope, that the EMP first strike might so destabilize de- de- us, uh, that, uh, you know, that he would win. A super EMP weapon would take down not just 
the civilian critical infrastructures, but the fields are so powerful, you know, it could paralyze our retaliatory forces and our strategic command and control. Uh, it's the only realistic prospect he would have for achieving a victory in war. So I think that that's, that's what it would probably look like, you know. It makes sense from a military standpoint, but also because Kim Jong-un is a, is a, is a obviously a risk taker and he would, he would roll the dice. Uh, in addition to the EMP attack, as we have been discussing, there'd be cyber attacks. You know, uh, North Korea has got more cyber warriors under arms uh, than than we do. You know, they've they've got a, a bigger cyber army than the United States does in cyber command. So they'd be using cyber attacks as well to go after our electric grid and do whatever damage they could to us and to our allies. And uh, I have no doubt uh, now. Uh, it's it's doubtful that North Korea's got North Korean saboteurs here in the United States, but you know they are allied with Iran, and uh, they have relations with international terrorism. Uh, 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 I would not be surprised. I, I, it would probably be part of their plan, you know, to to and 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 certainly it would be in Iran's interests to take us down as well. Uh, that is that has been a long term geostrategic goal of theirs so the sabotage parts of it you know you could expect terrorist cells that are already embedded in this country at minimum the ones from Iran but possibly also those from international terrorists you know to be activated in a coordinated way you know to go after key nodes in our electric grid and uh, in our other critical infrastructures it's not it's very underreported in the press I'm one of the few people who's actually written about it but the Met, the attack on the Metcalf Transformer substation in California that happened in 2013, um, uh, the, uh, the U.S. Federal Energy Regulatory Commission had the U.S. Navy SEALs look at that, and the SEALs concluded that it was a really professional commando-style operation at the same level that the SEALs themselves would conduct. They judged that it was practice. It was practice. 2013, April 16th, 2013, for some larger, more ambitious attack on the U.S. electric grid that would happen in the future. And the perpetrators, you know, when the police arrived at Metcalf, they they had shot up the transformers. They knew exactly where to shoot. Uh, they had gone into an underground tunnel and cut the cables. They knew exactly what to what to cut. Um, and when the police arrived, you know, they arrived and uh, less than a minute. You know, the guys were still there, and a minute later they disappeared, and we, we never found out who they were. Somehow they disappeared mysteriously into the night. But here's a clue. On April 16, 2013, you know, we were in the middle of what was then the worst ever nuclear crisis with North Korea. And on that very day, that same day, North Korea's KMS-3 satellite, the first one they launched, passed over Washington, D.C., posing a, a threat like they were practicing to attack the eastern grid just when this attack by sabotage was happening on the western grid. So North Korea may already have practiced for this very scenario you know, we're describing. But I think that's what it would look like from the North Korean, from the North Korean side. Dr. Pry, um, uh, just as you were explaining that, uh, a few thoughts went through my mind. One, 
what would be the would we be able to successfully launch a we'll say uh, an EMP attack against North Korea, and would that be effective in disabling their um, military capabilities as far as launching missiles and uh, whether it's the South Korea or an attempted strike on America? We could launch an EMP attack. Uh, perhaps not as good a one as the North Koreans could launch against us. You know, because during the Obama administration, and unfortunately during the Bush administration too, you know, we have followed this rule, you know, that we aren't building new nuclear weapons of new design. We never built, uh, we never built super EMP weapons. You know, all we've got are the old Cold War style weapons. Uh, the designs are 30 to 40 years old, and uh, the weapons themselves are not new. We've been patching them together, you know, for 30 to 40 years. Um, but we could do, we could do an EMP attack, uh, and it might be enough. To, uh, it would be more effective than our cyber attacks. You know, uh, and in fact, even the Obama administration, uh, even the Obama administration's Department of Defense, you know, in testimony, open source testimony to Congress, and I was kind of astonished to see this, uh, but they were talking about the same kind of new way of warfare that uh, General Slipchenko was describing in his book, where we have talked about using against North Korea and potentially other adversaries a combination of nuclear MP and cyber attacks and physical sabotage to take down the other side to stop them from launching. Nuclear MP would give us the best chance uh, of uh, of stopping their launches. Um, so it's something we could do, but we'd have to strike first. We'd have to get, we'd have to be the ones to make the make the strike first. It's very, while from a military standpoint, it certainly makes sense. You know, when I think about the attitude that exists in our military and and our foreign policy establishments toward nuclear weapons use, though, let's not forget the people who are advising Trump right now, President Trump are mostly Obama administration holdovers. You know, except for a handful of people that the president has appointed, you know, there are still 4,000 uh, uh, appointed people uh, that have not been appointed by the Trump administration, and the, they are basically still Obama administration holdovers, 99% of them. You know, we've only got General Mattis, for example, in the whole Pentagon. The Secretary of Defense is a Trump appointee, but everybody else, is from the Obama administration. Same thing in the Department of State. You know, we have one or two people appointed, and everybody else is from the Obama administration. All these other bureaucrats have a say or would advise the president. Uh, and if their advice wasn't listened to, they would be leaking to the Washington Post and the New York Times to stop a decision that they disagreed with. It would be very difficult, even though Trump is a, is a, a brave guy, is a very brave guy. Even he might find it a bridge too far to decide to launch a nuclear first strike against North Korea, even if it's an EMP first strike that doesn't blow up any cities or anything. Uh, you know, for an American president to do a gutsy thing like that, especially with the with all of the bureaucrats in the Pentagon, except possibly his own defense secretary, and all the bureaucrats in the State Department, except perhaps for the Secretary of Defense against him, that's a very gutsy thing. Hard to, you know, it would be a real profile and courage. But it might be, it might be necessary. 
you know, it might be, you know, the only hope we have uh, under current circumstances if the balloon were to go up tomorrow. Okay. Uh, Dr. Pryor, what about, you know, we've seen this uh, being used unsuccessfully in the, in the Middle East. Uh, it destabilizes the, the nations, but uh, regime change. It, if we were to take out uh, the leader of North Korea, would that make any difference whatsoever, or is the ideology so strong there that you would just have another um, type of Kim Jong-un? Taking him out with plausible deniability on our part. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, North Korea is a different situation than was the situation in Iraq or Afghanistan. Uh, There really aren't any successors to Kim Jong-un. Their system is so focused on this one man. You know, North Korea masquerades as a Stalinist dictatorship. But it's really a theocracy that's uh, dedicated to the worship of Kim Jong-un. And that's not a joke. You know, uh, uh, they attribute supernatural powers to him. Uh, we we laugh about it. I mean, Kim Jong Un is described in their own press as as golfing a perfect game. Uh, that he's invented uh, the internet, or he's invented cyber warfare, or uh, every successful nuclear test and successful missile launch has been because of the wisdom of Kim Jong Un. Uh, uh, he's described as having various kinds of supernatural capabilities. Uh, in the press, he's described as appearing in public, and there's a halo around his head, literally a visible halo around his head. He, uh, if you've seen imagery, uh, movie reels of the funeral of his father, Kim Jong-il, it's really hard to believe. I mean, this monster, uh, you know, was gen- uh, it, it's hard to believe it was an act. Millions of people in absolute hysterics over the passing of their great leader. Uh, and the succession in North Korea in order to set up Kim Jong-un, uh, you know, it, 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 it took a little time. He was in place. He was appointed. The, the, uh, his father had made it clear that this guy was supposed to be his successor. And the secret police that surround him, thousands of them, to enforce himself as the successor, uh, knew that he was the guy. If you were to suddenly take him out, I mean, Kim Jong-un killed his stepbrother in Malaysia, I think in part because he didn't want his stepbrother being used as a uh, as a replacement. You know, you don't get to be the heir apparent to Kim Jong-un in North Korea and live. Heir apparents get bumped off. So there isn't any real successor to him. I mean, the short answer is, I think, would be an normal internal crisis. Well, while North Korea is, uh, you know, very formidable militarily, you know, it's a uh, uh, totalitarian militant state, uh, I think in, in this respect it's extremely fragile. Uh, it would be the equivalent of, like, killing the Wicked Witch and the Wizard of Oz. You know, I really, uh, I think that it would be uh, incredibly disruptive to their command and control and... Uh, uh, I mean, under a benign and very hopeful scenario, maybe somebody with sanity would step in and uh, take. Although that's 
probably not the likely scenario. Uh, more yeah, likely the, the place would just fall apart into some kind of civil war. But I'd yeah, rather have the uh, North Koreans yeah. killing each other than killing us. And is that on the table? I mean, uh, Dr. Bry, is that on the table? Uh, because we saw rumors, reports of SEAL Team 6 practicing, you know, all this other this stuff. Or was that just for uh, theater, or, or is that actually on the table? I mean, could, that, could this happen? I think it is on the table. I uh, I don't think it's classified. Uh, when the press reports were describing the uh, Eagle Full uh, 2017 exercises that transpired in March, I mean, that's one of the things that got uh, Kim Jong-un, well, he's always upset about these exercises. They're routine exercises that we have every year, but part of the exercise is to take out the North Korean political military leadership, to decapitate them, you know, to stop them from launching their nuclear weapons. And um, uh. so uh, it's an open, it's not a secret. I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, uh, you know, uh, our Pentagon has admitted that that's part of the exercise scenario that we have practiced and uh and certainly it's one of the reasons Kim Jong Un is uh so in his paranoia you know he's already a psychopath paranoid psychopath uh you know why he we we dismiss it by calling it nuclear saber rattling and I don't think it's merely nuclear saber rattling you know these guys have been on a war footing expecting a uh, an outbreak of a new Korean war or a new world war Ever since the armistice, you know, the, North, the Korean right. War never ended for them. You know, uh, right. uh, we never had a peace treaty with them. Uh, the North has always considered itself to continually be in a state of war. And it reminds us of this by occasionally committing some act of military aggression against the South uh, or an act of terrorism internationally. Um, so, uh, yes, that is, uh, that is on the table, and I, 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 it's not a secret. Well, I'll tell you something. Uh, you know, if I was in the White House, aside from drinking gallons of Maalox or whatever stomach medication there there might be, I'd, I'd be calling you up and saying, hey, man, hey, come on down and, and uh, you know, uh, handle this. Because, man, uh, your analysis is, is measured and, and certainly you, you know the landscape. And, and I don't mean to interrupt, no, but, uh, fine. Dr. Pry, do you find Donald Trump's lack of foreign uh, policy experience in a problem? Uh, when dealing with with this situation, I think it's uh, I think it's a strength. Uh, I think it's a strength for him to come to it with fresh eyes. Uh, I think uh, if we'd be in real trouble right now if Hillary Clinton had been elected president. Boy, I was going to ask you that with all yeah. of her with all of her vast foreign policy experience, quote-unquote, because when they talk about foreign policy experiment experience, what that means is you think like the Washington establishment. Let's not forget, my friends, that the reason we're where we are is because the Washington establishment put us here. You know, this is a consequence of these professional State Department people who have been trained at Harvard, and uh, uh, they're just like Neville Chamberlain. You know, they, uh, they, I wish they had read more history and read less international relations theory. Uh, that's where their heads are buried. Uh, you know, the, uh, this belief that you can negotiate your way out of anything, 
uh, that we're so clever that we can convince the Chinese that it's their interests to do what we want them to do. Uh, the problems that we have right now is because our foreign policy establishment uh, has got its head buried in the wrong place and has, been, and has made mistakes over decades and hasn't learned anything. It hasn't learned anything from its mistakes. Let me give you an example. Look at the Clinton administration, the agreed framework under Bill Clinton. You know, that was negotiated uh, for us by the Department of State, uh, by the Clinton appointees. It was a State Department project. I was on the North Korea Advisory Group in Congress when that was going on. Uh, Jim Woolsey, who I had served under under, under the, uh, uh, the CIA, you know, was still the CIA director. And, uh, you know, in January 25th, I believe it was 1994, Woolsey testified in public to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee that the intelligence community had judged that North Korea had the bomb. And for the first six months of the Clinton administration, there was a crisis. And uh, they, because they thought they might have to go to war with North Korea to stop their nuclear program cold. But the... Uh, the hubris that Western democracies that I explained earlier asserted itself. And Gary Seymour, uh, uh, from Bill Clinton's national security staff, met with me and, and other members of the, uh, of the congressional national security staff to tell us, peace in our time, peace in our time. They've come up with an agreed framework, so we won't have to go to war with North Korea. North Korea, if we, if we give North Korea economic support and, uh, and uh, build additional nuclear reactors and give them uh, uh, free food and free oil, they've agreed to engage in negotiations that will eventually denuclearize them so they won't have the bomb anymore. And uh, Clinton claimed credit all through the eight years of his administration that his agreed framework had succeeded and that we were on a pathway toward denuclearizing North Korea. But we on the North Korean advisory group thought that that wasn't true, that North Korea was lying, you know, that they continued to feverishly work on the bomb. They hadn't perfected an ICBM yet. That was the main thing. They were trying to work. They were trying to perfect the Type Dong 2 so they could have an ICBM that would reach the United States. And we tried to tell anybody in the press who would listen what the truth was, but the press wouldn't listen to us. Instead, they gave Clinton all this credit for denuclearizing North Korea and solving the problem of the nuclear North Korea. Well, we're, look what happened. Where did that get us? You know, uh, Gary Staymore was one of that negotiating team, and Wendy Sherman was the negotiating his negotiating partner in the Department of State. And then, you know, we ended up with the nuclear North Korea, clear as day, by the by the time of the Obama administration. Actually, by the time of the Bush administration, but it was clear as day. That's right. right. And th- this and was then, under Ash Carter. Right. right, and who did we send to negotiate the Iran nuclear deal? Who did we send? We sent Gary Seymour and Wendy Sherman to negotiate the Iran nuclear deal for us, even though these two had failed catastrophically and delivered us a nuclear North Korea. You know, this is the, you know, my point is that this is the foreign policy establishment. These are the experienced people in our foreign policy establishment 
they have been they've been a catastrophe for our national security especially the state department people i'm not talking about the people in the department of defense or the intelligence community but the state department people you know who are the tip usually is for us is the tip of the spear we always try negotiation and give the department of state the opportunity and these guys will insist that there is never any end to negotiation there's always hope that the negotiation will succeed and that's how we ended up with the nuclear North Korea. So I actually think that Trump's lack of experience, you know, because he hasn't been brainwashed by these State Department uh, yeah. ideologues, uh, you know, is actually a positive thing. That he'll hopefully he'll bring common sense to it, uh, the way the way the man in the street would. I think I think Blake William of Buckley. I'd rather take the first hundred people. Uh, in and in in the New York, in a well, let's not make it the New York City telephone book. Let's make it the, uh, you know, uh, a, a telephone book from Tampa, Florida. You know, the first hundred people in a telephone book from Tampa, Florida, I put them in charge of our foreign policy, uh, you know, instead of these guys who've been doing our foreign policy for the past 20 years and have created this disaster that's in front of them. You know, there's two, yep. there's, um, they read too little history. Uh, they are, they live in a bubble, an academic bubble. Uh, their views are dominated by arms control ideology and uh, uh, and a belief system that comes basically from uh, you know from uh, from from Harvard and Yale and Princeton, these universities that won't allow conservatives to speak on campus. You know, the people that come out of these institutions are convinced that the United States is the reason we have all these problems in the world. And it's the United States that is the chief problem. And these are the kinds of people, you know, uh, that have their PhDs from Harvard and international relations that get the top jobs in the Department of State, and they regard America. They blame America first for everything. And that's why we have such a lousy foreign policy. So, well, I'm sorry for my long-winded answer. No, that's good. To wrap it up, no, I do not think that Trump's lack of foreign policy experience is 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 is, uh, is a problem. I actually... Again, think it's a potential asset because I, I hope he'll bring the kind of common sense to the problem that the average American would bring. Uh, you know, the foreign policy establishment, uh, you know, has been a disaster. And if the much more experienced Hillary Clinton had won, uh, we would have no hope. There'd just be no hope for us coming out of this uh, with uh, successfully. You know, we'd probably end up in a war that would lose. Exactly. And, and anything, in my view, by the way, I think that that's spot on. And I think a lot of people, um, that that's an area of contention, you know, among a lot of people or with a lot of people. But I think that's spot on. Um, and I'm, I'm in agreement with you, too. I, I would prefer to see 535 farmers, uh, business owners, successful business owners, and uh, entrepreneurs running our country. Um yeah, than what we've got there. So or right now, but it's interesting. You go point back to the agreed framework uh, deals back in the nineties, early nineties. We were at the brink of war in what ninety three, ninety four, if I'm not mistaken, as you had mentioned. Um, yes, and then uh, we acquiesced from January of nineteen ninety four. For about six months after that period, the Clinton administration was seriously thinking then about mm-hmm. a preemptive strike against North Korea. And uh, and some of the Clintonistas, even during after after the their after the agreed framework was exposed as a, 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 as as completely bogus during the Bush administration, when North Korea was flight testing its Taipo Dong two, 
and uh, you know, and it was obvious. And they had done their nuclear tests. It was obvious that the agreed framework had not stopped them. Uh, Ash Carter uh, and William Perry, who had been Secretary of Defense under Bill Clinton, Ash Carter, of course, was recently a Secretary of Defense under Barack Obama, but they chastised the Bush administration for failing to preempt North Korea. They were recommending in the Washington Post that, North, that Bush should be blowing up and shooting down the North Korean missiles so that they would not be able to develop missiles. I find it interesting that, uh, that when Ash Carter did become Secretary of Defense, what happened to his good advice? I actually think he was right. You know, I do wish the Bush administration had, had done that and had followed that advice. But when he was Secretary of Defense under Barack Obama, we didn't hear a peep from him out of right. taking preemptive actions against North Korea. And here we are. Such is, and he, yeah. such is the wisdom of our, of our professional uh, foreign policy establishment and, uh, and even our defense establishment, at least the Democrat-appointed part of our... Uh, yeah, now here we are. Uh, and, it's uh, you know, it's and sorry to sorry to jump in there, uh, Doctor Pry. Um, we only just have a few minutes left. I want to make sure I ask you this: the agenda of the globalists or the new world order, if you want to uh, term them that, have been to come against North Korea and Iran. Um, and before nine eleven, there was you know a list of seven countries that didn't have the the central banks. And North Korea and, I, and Iran uh, were two of the countries on the list. Libya and Syria were a few others. All those now have central banks, except for for North Korea and Iran. We know that this has been part if, of their. If you want to describe that as motive, but go ahead. Yeah, we know that this this has been part of their um, plan and, and agenda for for a long time, um, and that they plan on bringing this about. Do you see any way uh, that this scenario can end? Uh, diplomatically with an agreement maybe even between China and North Korea or do you think that this the globalist agenda of uh, taking over North Korea and Iran will uh, come to fruition one way or the other oh I I think this is likely to end with a negotiated uh, agreement but not a solution Uh, I I think this Mm. is uh, I don't think the United States uh, will have the Fortitude in the end to to uh, to do a preemptive strike against North Korea. Uh, I think the, there's going to be enormous pressure from the Department of State and from the uh, from the from the media uh, to uh, to negotiate with the North Koreans. Uh, we're, we're we're on that pathway now, you know, because because uh, uh, you know Trump has gotten big points. One of the few things wherein he has been praised is that he's got the Chinese to appear like they're willing to find a negotiated solution. I'm a skeptic. I'm I'm on the minority view here, but I don't trust the Chinese, as I've explained. I think that uh, I think that this has been a game the Chinese have been playing for 20 years, pretending that they're that they're going to find a negotiated solution. So I think that what they're going to do is try to turn Trump away from a military solution toward a negotiated solution. And uh, and we'll just see history repeat itself. The Chinese will pocket some huge concessions for being so helpful, and um, North Korea will not be stopped. China will con- and Russia will continue to help them evolve forward their nuclear threat, and we will have lost the time and opportunity to have stopped North Korea. And then, uh, you know, uh, 
in uh, the peace that follows, uh, we and our allies in the face of a North Korea that can reach out and strike the United States with ICBMs, with EMP, uh, strike our allies in North Korea, in, in South Korea, and Japan, will reevaluate, you know, the nature of our security agreements and say, you know, gee, is America's security guarantees to us really credible in this new world where North Korea can strike the United States? Do I really want to keep depending on the North on, on America since they failed to stop North Korea from becoming a nuclear power, despite the fact that Bill Clinton promised us years ago that he had done that and they and they failed? Maybe it's time for me to get closer to China and get closer to Russia because those guys seem to be smarter. They seem to understand power politics smarter. And maybe we're on the wrong side of history here. I think that's what's the likely outcome, you know, where the bad guys, there will be a negotiation, but not a solution. The, or the solution will be one from the that's favorable from the block of the totalitarian and authoritarian powers and not favorable to freedom. And so we will face a the prospect of the bad guys winning the new Cold War without fighting. You know, by this by this chess game in which North Korea has been a, a major and important piece, but it doesn't have to be this way. You know, there are things we can do. You know, before we close, because I don't want this to end on a completely negative and defeatist note. But there are obvious things that we can do. You know, we could shoot down those satellites. You know, we could shoot down. I wouldn't advocate blowing the missiles up in the pads, but we could shoot down the North Korean missiles with Aegis cruisers when they're launched. That way, Kim Jong-un doesn't lose face, and he's not forced into attacking South Korea or anything. You know, as long as his people don't see that their missiles are being shot down in a very visible public way, you know, only he and a handful of his general staff would know that we were doing it. In the Dr. meantime, Pratt. we should... Well, yes. I don't mean to interrupt, the, but we've reached the absolute end of our of our time, ah, taking us right to the very end. But, but I'll tell you something, Dr. Pry. You've got the solu- I mean, the solutions are out there. And, and I just want everyone, to, we want everyone to know that this doesn't have to be a bummer. Like you said, familysecuritymatters.org. And, 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 um, your, your books as well will help people, correct? Yes, yes. Not, and not just to know what Washington should be doing, but what we should be doing for our families, for our communities, and in our states. You know, we All don't right. have to wait and shouldn't be waiting for Washington to solve the problem of the threat to our country. You know, we should take our fate in our own hands and do what's necessary to survive. And we're going to urge everyone in our listening uh, audience or viewing audience to certainly spread your information around and uh, be because you've got you've got some great analysis, great answers. Yeah, and I'm sorry, man, we're, we're already into the break. God bless you, my friend. Thank you. And thank you what all on your audience for becoming a part of the solution. Thank you, sir. All right. Brother, until we talk again, God bless you. We'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. Worldwide demand is making coconuts one of the highest-yielding cash crops available today. Coca-Cola, Pepsi, and many high-net-worth individuals have invested billions of dollars into coconuts for strong growth and solid long-term income. Yields could be as high as 18% or more per year. Capital appreciation and exceptional income for up to 60 long years would be an absolutely brilliant investment to pass on to future generations. Diversify wisely with direct ownership of fully managed coconuts on prime farmland close to the beautiful Costa Rican border. 
For more information, qualified accredited investors should go to ProfitsInCoconuts.com or phone 855-888-6288. That's 855-888-6288. This announcement does not constitute an offer to sell securities or a solicitation of an offer to purchase. Offer made by prospectus only. 855-888-6288 or visit ProfitsInCoconuts.com. ProfitsInCoconuts.com. You may never look at your city, town, or its people the same way ever again. Stained by Blood, a murder investigation based upon a true story by private investigator Douglas J. Hagman. Using the character Mark Stiles, Hagman takes you on a journey behind the scenes where the homicide becomes a secondary to an underworld of satanic ritual abuse, child abduction, and even mind-controlled experimentation. For five years, a brutal killer remained on the loose, free to kill again. As Mark struggles to navigate the maze of bizarre twists and untangle a web of deeply hidden secrets kept by some of the most powerful and influential people in his community and beyond. Stained by Blood. Order your copy of this engaging novel today at HagmanandHagman.com and click on the link. Stained by Blood at HagmanandHagman.com and click on the link. Stained by Blood. of the Hagman and Hagman Report. Each and every Tuesday in hour number three, we are joined by Stan Deo of standeo.com, and we're going to get to him in just a second. But first, I want to bring you a word from our sponsor, Greenovative. The folks at Greenovative um, tell us that the response from our audience uh, has been fantastic. Uh, Alan Riggs has been a guest on our show a number of times to talk about his product. The new GMAG Complete Pack and Complete with Barter Pack are a big hit. Um, we have negotiated with Alan Riggs for a good way to say thank you by offering a short-term discount. That's right. With masterful negotiations, the H&H team got him to agree to another 15% wait, wait, store. Wait, masterful negotiations. Is that why he wears a baseball helmet every time I go to see him? <laughs> go ahead. No, they're going to... Uh, they have agreed to, to give another 15% store-wide discount from now through the 1st of May, which gives you about five days to take advantage of this offer. Uh, the Greenovative products make power anytime, anywhere, in any weather, day or night. They come with accessories to meet nearly any need during an emergency, and they are EMP-proof. To get the discount, enter the code HAGMAN for 15% off. Again, the discount code is HAGMAN for 15% off the store-wide products. And again, their new GMAG Complete Pack, uh, complete with their Barter Pack, are their biggest hits. Discount code HAGMAN. You will be glad you did it. Thank you, Green Innovative and Alan Riggs. With that, we're going to bring on Standale from Standale.com. It's uh, another Tuesday with Stan, and it's great to have you back on. Am I here? Hello? Hello? <laughs> yes. Good to be back. Loud and clear. Yes, well, we're finally getting our, our roof done uh, after the uh, winds whipped them. A lot of the tiles are she shingles off the roof. Um, the guys have been out That's here for good. about oh, two or three days doing it now. So you called the guy. You called the guy to get your roof done. You know that little easy button they show on TV? <laughs> it's a lie. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Oh, dear. Yeah. Well, yeah, this is good progress. So, 
progress. Uh, I, I want to start saying that I don't think you saw this. Uh, folks, go to sandeo.com. Check out the pick of the day. Number one, you got an owl with a, a beautiful German shepherd. Isn't that neat? That's amazing. Yeah. Ooh, 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 ooh. Wow. I mean, the, you got a German shepherd <laughs> cuddling with an owl. It's not just uh, yeah, hanging around him. Yeah. yeah. Cuddling. That is priceless, isn't it? Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. well, it, there are some really nice things around us if we stop to smell the roses and have a look. It's just really Thank cute, you. isn't it? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's. Uh, I'm going to send that to my it, it, wife. Is there um, is there a story behind that? Or did, yeah. Did you know of? Or okay, yeah. It's, okay, there it is. I'm sorry, I got it. Okay. Yeah, go, go to standio.com, folks. Photo of the day. Okay. Yeah. Not a German yeah. shepherd. Get your geography right. Yeah. You know, we've got two owls that hang around our joint out here, too, and our dogs think that's really something great to bark at loudly at night. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. And today we had two um, prairie falcons join us. So it's wow. a popular spot in the block. Wow. You can... Uh, uh, Shoot pictures monthly for National Geographic. Yeah. There you go. Well, yes, yes, you can. I kind of try to figure out ways to keep them off of the smaller birds here that uh, come to visit us as well. Uh, that's the sad part about it. Those are birds of prey. Get the owl and the falcon mm-hmm. both. It's amazing. Yeah, Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. Uh, there you go. Oh, yeah. my goodness. Interesting. Now, I, I missed the first part, you know, last hour. I wanted to hear that. Uh, you know, that sounded like a really knowledgeable guy you had on. Yeah, Dr. V, uh, Peter Vincent Pry, uh, he's a former CIA analyst, uh, big, big time into, uh, the threat of, uh, EMP nuclear, you know, the, he's, he wrote Blackout Wars, um, Apocalypse Unknown, the struggle to protect America from EMPs. Um, fantastic books, but he he's in, he was in the government for in government for a long time, and he knows this stuff. And he's saying, "Man, you know, this North Korea. I mean, in a nutshell, North Korea, big problem, big problem, especially from the satellites." Um, he, he you reckon the satellites couldn't deliver stuff that would hurt with an EMP? Yeah, at least there's that possibility. And then, of course. Um, he, he also believed, again, just to convey in a nutshell, China not to be trusted um, with respect to any negotiations. Um, Russia. Yeah. Russia, well, no real security interest or uh, economic interest with respect to North Korea. So that's they're kind of a, eh, you know, let China and the U.S. fight it out, kind of, so to speak, in North Korea. Um, hands-off approach, perhaps. But the threat to me, and uh, Joe, I think you got the same thing. I think, you know, the threat is really ramped up over the last, if you remember, uh, 1994 it was, the agreed framework, uh, as we approached war with North Korea, um, under Clinton, it was Clinton, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think yeah. it was in 93. Yeah, 93, 94. Anyway, we're, we're back there, except they're nuclear armed, and, uh, 
it's move the hand closer to midnight, I guess. This is the takeaway from that. Yeah, there wasn't really um the uh, solutions that that uh would be good for anybody <laughs> or outcomes that would be good for anybody. Yeah, that's yeah. from what he said. So, I mean, it, 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 we could agree or reach an agreement, but not a solution at the best case scenario. Ultimately, well, you know, I wonder whether the the remnants of the Sino Soviet uh, treaty against the United States uh, was back in the sixty late sixty. I wonder if it survived the breakup of the Soviet Union and that Russia and uh, China will once again are, are still allied against the United States in the event of a nuclear concentration. I, I, you know, uh, I can't see why they wouldn't be because it would be in both of them's interest to bring us down. It's a free-for-all out there, it seems like. I, 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 there, there's no... To me... I don't understand. What? Help me, help me figure this out. Uh, you got North Korea. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you've got all these. Uh, I don't know. We're kind of screwed, I guess, in a way. It seems you know like. that um, that does. You bring up a point. I've got up there on my show images page and image thirty-eight, right up there, top in the middle. Uh, more than ever, people need to be figuring out what they would do in the event of an EMP attack, or we lose all the power, or you know, and our computers are dead and cars don't work and that kind of stuff uh, and or a nuclear attack with that uh, on U.S. soil what do you do you know what what kind of things are going to be a threat to you in, in addition to the radiation the blast and that kind of stuff uh, you got to look at gangs and you know how to weather the fallout and that kind of stuff it is more important now than it ever has been since you know the, the mission, mission uh, <laughs> the uh, missile crisis in Cuba uh, in 63 I think it was um I uh, put up there uh, just a, a little summary of the, the chapters in Holly's book, Dare to Prepare, chapters 44 through 49. Uh, you're looking at six chapters there that are dealing with nuclear emergencies, how to prepare for it, how to shelter it. Will your food and water be contaminated by fallout? You know, the food may not be, but the water could be, and all that kind of stuff, things you, you really need to know. And... Um, I've put that up there to remind folks. We're certainly getting a lot of people getting their book at the moment to get ready for, you know, a nuclear attack in the United States. And I think it is, it is eminent. I mean, she wouldn't have spent nearly 10% of a 632-page book talking about it if it wasn't important, really important. And it's just, today it's even more so than ever. So, uh, we'll get that out of the way. Look at that. Have a look at the, the those chapters and the, the subheadings underneath there. And, uh, if you don't understand fully what those Subtitles or those subchapters talk about. You better get in and have a read of it because all those things are important. Um, anyway, that's yeah. That's in keeping what we're talking you know, about there. Uh, uh, real quick, uh, just to, to piggyback off what you said. Uh, while we have the capabilities, uh, you know, power, we have the technology to put things like this onto you know uh, onto discs or print as much material out as you can to have the hard copy so if the electric grid does does go down and uh you know you don't have everything on your computer that you won't be able to access or get to uh there's you know keep a, a file specifically for life-saving information whether it's medical treatment um or you know what you just um what was just up on the screen 
any and everything that would help you that you might need uh, to count on in times that you won't be able to access it. Uh, it'll really go a long way. Can I, Stan, can I ask you something, yeah. too? Yeah. Uh, just, uh, like my, uh, my 1976, uh, Jaguar Vondenplaz or XJ6, that'll, that'll still run right after an EMP. I- I'm kidding. I don't have one of those, but, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, uh, thank you, Ali. The, um, yeah, some things, some will run, some won't. Um, I'm not too sure that an EMP will kill uh, you know, the cars, if they're in shelter, uh, you know, a, a garage with wire mesh around it, uh, just part of the construction type thing that they do, uh, you know, uh, in, in some of them that are made of cement and brick coverings. And, you know, if you got stucco, they put a, a wire mesh underneath that, um, and their own rubber tires. So I don't know, you know, if you're far enough away from the initial EMP, some of the cars may work. But if you survive one EMP, just remember there might be two or three others either from the sun or from an enemy attacking the United States. And somebody like like North Korea, for crying out loud, all they got to do is get close to us in international waters on somebody else's uh, transport cargo ship, open up one of their cargo containers, launch a uh, surface-to-air uh, nuclear uh, attack over the United States by just sending one bomb up high enough, close to the center of the country, maybe 200 miles up, blow it off, and you'll wipe out with EMP all kinds of infrastructure, communications, uh, power supplies, roads, traffic lights, cars, everything in one hit. So it's a poor man's way to bring down a highly dependent uh, industrialized country like this. So uh, just remember that's that's very possible. And and if you're not even you know thinking that's the possibility, look at what's happening over in California, for instance, where a lot of geological or geophysical changes. Uh, you know, weather changes are happening, climate changes, and, you know, salad crops like uh, lettuce and uh, cabbage, you know, a lot of things that people eat in their salad, they're either missing off the shelves here, or they're so expensive, like two or three, in fact, one of the crops, Holly said, was uh, four times its normal price now, and this is just the beginning of what's going to eventually probably work out to be a famine. Oh. Wow. Okay, in our store here, she said, in the Walmart store, we haven't had cauliflower on the shelves for four weeks. Can't get it. So, you know, um, as I say, this is the thin end of the wedge. You wouldn't think that you could have food shortages in America, but it's coming. And it's another reason for you to get prepared and get you some, you know, freeze-dried food of some sort. Uh, you know, I should tell, tell you about that in a number of the books. But get get the stuff now. Don't put it off any longer. And for people in California and on the West Coast in general, you've got to realize that that big quake they're all talking about is probably going to be a series of quakes. And it is so close. We're hearing experts in the field saying it is, you know, count the days. It's not count the years. It's, we're at the tail end of the predictions that have been made by USGS as to when the big one is going to hit. Uh, we're within months of that. So... Do some soul searching and, and really think about it, you know how you get out of a certain place to safety by foot or by bicycle or whatever. Uh, should there be earthquakes over in California and Oregon and Washington offshore, even at uh, Juan de Fuca Plate, where you go to escape the tsunamis, where you go to uh, endure after that? Do you have family in the mountains or over toward um, you know Utah or something like that? You know, or Nevada? 
you, you have to plan these things out and try to figure out that everybody else is going to be using the main road. How are you going to get to safety? So a lot of that stuff, you know, we talked about it kind of hypothetically in the last 10 or 15 years, but we're to the point where we're talking about it tomorrow. Right. And I saw the, wow. the price of lettuce was in California it was up um, from, you know, 220 uh, I had a lettuce to almost $4. And there's a number of, as you said, a number of other um, uh, shortages or, or the, the prices are, are increasing dramatically. And I was doing some budgeting, calculating, you know, just what me and my wife spend on groceries a month. And it's it's unbelievable. Uh, and when when you look at, at how much... Um, you spend on a monthly basis and then look at some of the other options out there. Uh, as you said, you know, storable food, uh, buying in bulk. There are a lot of things that I can do and I'm sure a lot of other people can do out there, not only to save money, but to, um, you know, buy the, the necessities, uh, in a way in bulk and also in a way that, that, uh, helps your pocketbooks. And it's really important, uh, at least for us in these times, to um, you know make sure we we budget properly. Because what we used to do is go to the grocery store, no list. We would just get what we remembered and what we saw that we needed while we were there. Hey, the days of shopping for the you know next couple of days that's over. Yeah, it should be over. Yeah, and the but, things uh, on the end of the aisles for the impulse buying, you got to have those too. There you go. Yeah, yeah. It's just uh, and when we did the calculations, you know. Um, from buying in bulk and, and to, to coupon cutting to looking for the right deals, you know, we're talking a hundred, if not more, a month, hundreds yeah, of dollars a month. We use a ton of coupons. I'll tell you that. You'd be foolish not to. But anyway, we digress. Well, I know um, we, uh, you know, Holly picked out a number of the freeze-dried foods and stuff that we got here from uh, various suppliers, um, and that's probably been five or six years ago, at least, and. You know, things like, you know, freeze-dried, um, say, peas or corn or, um, you know, we've got rice in bags and things now, you know, recent to purchase it so it's not off. But the point is that right now we could shut our door and about the only thing I'd miss would be fresh milk, but we've got powdered stuff and, you know, fresh butter, but we've got that too in cans and powder form. Um, but, you know, that stuff we bought six or seven years ago on those prices, which were cheaper, and we have them here. We've got them in our hot little fist. All we've got to do is add water, and we've got plenty of that we've stored away, too. Um, so mm-hmm. although we're feeling, you know, quite uh, comfortable about that, a lot of folks, I'm sure, have not budgeted for that, and uh, they're now going to have to change priorities if they want to, you know, either endure where they are when things start to get, you know, really serious crises like, you know, earthquakes or war or whatever, and then how to defend that, that's, that uh, stash of goods against your neighbors and friends that are going to come after it. That's the sad part of it, but that's true. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Uh, uh, wow. Just name a crisis or, or you know, <laughs> look around. I, I just... Hey, the stock market broke 21000 There we go. Yeah. We're, we're okay. <laughs> we're okay. Oh, good, good. I was worried for a while. <laughs> yeah, Stan, I mean, all, all my cattle futures came in. Uh, I made, I think, hundred grand off of $1,000. <laughs> oh, wait, that wasn't me. What am I saying? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh Lord, I you know you have to laugh because it's just so serious every day that you just walk around with a glum face if you don't, you know, and that doesn't help anybody. Um, I, I the guys doing our roof are um, uh, from uh, Mexico. <laughs> I didn't bother to ask the contractor whether they were legal or not, but I looked in their faces 
you remember us going down uh, various parts of Mexico years ago on holiday and seeing a lot of homes in the, the outskirts of the town that would have three walls of bricks or concrete, but no roof unless they hit some, you know, stretch some tarp or something over it and the front was open. And that was a home for so many people. Oh. And I, I know in, in South America, you know, that there are, you know, like in, in Brazil and places like that and further down into the uh, the continent, there are there are whole hillsides full of these kind of humpy type uh, environments. And here we are talking about whether we get to go golf or, you know, how much our 401k is going to give us. But I saw it in these guys' eyes, you know, that you guys just don't know what you've got. That's why they want to try to get in here illegally or any other way, you know. Uh, sadly, uh, yeah. if you let them, they will, they will destroy what they're after. That's true. And I, I want to just share this with you, Stan. This is funny. I have nothing of this when you're talking. Uh, you don't know if they're, you know, if you didn't ask their status. Uh, I was working a case up in uh, upstate New York. And I had to interview someone on an apple orchard, and a huge apple orchard. I mean, you know, the, the commercial, hundreds of hundreds of uh, workers. And uh, I pulled into the parking lot, and I, I, you could see all the all the workers. I got out of the car, and there was a. I was accompanied by, uh, uh, I, can't, I think it was a, a sheriff, maybe it was, it was some law enforcement. And honest to goodness, man, in like a second or two or three. Every every one of the workers was like gone, and the apples and bushels were on the ground and everything. And the owner said, "You know, uh, th- th- don't do that. I really wish you wouldn't have like come in like that." Of course, they were all illegal, and they just ran, uh, oh, thinking dear. that it was you know INS or something. But uh, I don't know. It, 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 humorous? I don't know if that was humorous or not. I, it was just kind of weird. Um, I know. This it, is back in the nineties. Kind of one of those strange kind of humors. I mean, you laugh uh, because you're shocked by it, really, but... Yeah. Oh, Lord. Well, yeah, you know, in fact, I wondered, I said to Holly, I said, I wonder if these guys think, you know, they're looking to see if we're going to turn them in or something, you know, because who knows these days, they must be looking over the shoulder all the time. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, sure. Absolutely. I don't know, Stan. It's um, in a different world right now. You know, what we're talking about... Um, Immigration and, and I don't know, Stan, the, uh, Trump, uh, issued an executive order on sanctuary cities and an Obama appointee judge, Judge William Ulrich, uh, issued an injunction preventing the government from enforcing the part of the executive order, uh, that states, uh, basically that the federal funds will be withheld unless these, uh, Jurisdictions, if these jurisdictions don't comply uh, with the federal law, well, the the injunction blocks that. And uh, just looking here at at this judge, he has a very interesting background. He um, was a big Obama supporter. He was appointed by Obama, donated over thirty thousand dollars to his campaign. But more interestingly, is he was the judge who ordered the Center for Medical Progress Planned Parenthood videos not be released. And um, he's also at the head of, of a number of other uh, controversies and and uh, strange decisions. But what's your take on this? Did, can can a, well, a judge? The grant. Uh, I mean, you you can stop the grants, right? Uh, that his uh, uh, the, the filing that that judge did will stop a lot of, uh, of uh, blockage of funds that normally go to these cities and states temporarily. But it can't stop. Uh, him, uh, President Trump, 
understand. That it's so this. obvious. Okay. Um, uh, what about you know Obama threatened to withhold federal funds from all uh, jurisdictions whose schools did not allow uh, the transgender bathroom policy? He said that he would withhold federal funds to to the states whose schools would not uh, go along with allowing boys in girls' rooms and girls in boys' rooms. Um, well, that's, that's, that's okay. That. Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, you know, it's, I guess it's difference between the two con- the two parties' concepts about how to run a country, but uh, you know what's fair and what's not. But it's like the election results; it's all in the same vein. Um, they lost the election. Oh, I'm going to spit out my pacifier and stomp my feet. You know, I mean, this is what it is. It's crazy. Okay. Yeah. Rules for us and rules for them different. Um, yeah, you know, I, so. we we pray for President Trump and his administration to be able to to set up and execute the policies they've talked about and want to do to give it a fair go. I mean, you know, they may make some mistakes, like they said on the the first uh, path, or first uh, submission of the uh, kill the Obama bill and put a new uh, health care bill in its place. Okay, fine. They're going to come back with a, a new version of it, but you know, they didn't they didn't. Uh, Force it down anybody's throat. They did it the normal way at the moment, anyway. And I think that we have to give the administration a chance to try their policy if we're being a fair country, which is asking a lot at this juncture, isn't it? Heck, yeah. Heck yeah. <laughs> yeah. You I, know, d- yeah. Sorry, it's on. wrong. No, you know what, Sam? It, it, it's. I guess that's it, too. You, you, you've kind of really. Simplified everything in in that statement. It's it's really what's good for me is not good for the or vice versa. Um, yeah, it, it's it, I don't know. Uh, you, I'm I'm rambling. Go ahead, my friend. You know, uh, I was looking in the news today. I I have a alert coming in from Google News every day about uh, Prince Mohammed bin Salman. You know, the number two in line for the throne to Saudi Arabia. And he's gaining more and more power and influence as each day passes. And his king, his father, the king, uh, Salman, has appointed two of his uh, nephews or cousins, anyway, closest relatives, to other ministerial positions or ambassadorships. And it just adds to the power of the Saud family. And that's why people think that the designated survivor, or, or um, well, survivor, but uh, the one to take over, the kingship, they should uh, King Solomon be, you know, taken out for senility or, or just die or whatever. The the legal guy that everybody thinks should take over is Prince uh, Mohammed bin Nayef, MBN, and you know that's his initials, MBN, instead of Mohammed bin Salman, MBS. Now it's not exactly the same as over here, but those are the two factions, you know, families that are dividing uh, Saudi Arabia, and Stand. you heard that. Uh, Sorry to interrupt you again, Stan, uh, but we're up against the break. When we come back, we'll pick up right where we left off about the the two factions uh, that are dividing Saudi Arabia. And, folks, you're listening to this edition of the Hagman and Hagman Report. Stan Deo is our guest. StanDeo.com is the website. And when Stan comes on, go to StanDeo.com. On the right-hand side, click on the Show Images page, and there you can follow along with what Stan's going to be talking about during his interviews on our show. We'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. Visit Hagman.
Report.com for the news and articles that matter most. Stay tuned. We will be right back. There shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time. No, nor ever shall be. Folks, I'm going to direct your attention to masterpreps.com, masterpreps.com. Wow. Masterpreps.com, the sponsor of our show, masterpreps.com. That's masterpreps.com. Take a visit there. High-quality items, made-in-America items. I mean, anything, everything you possibly want from cooking utensils, cooking frying pans. I mean, it is, it'll blow you away. Absolutely, Eric. It's insane. I mean, wow. Look at the products. Folks, visit masterpreps.com. Again, welcome to the Hagman and Hagman Report family. Masterpreps.com. I mean, wow. It's insane. Masterpreps.com. Are you ready for what comes next? Hi, I'm Grace Gonzalez from Trang Post in the Woods. We are an American family-owned company founded and built on skills and knowledge gained from responding to 18 major disasters in the U.S. and around the world. We found that most people don't have enough food and water to survive, let alone any medicinals to save their life. We're offering 25% off our must-have American Heritage Armies kit. It contains 12 homeopathic armies, a booklet that goes over everything in your kit, and our brand new book, Major Disasters Lessons Learned. Just enter coupon code HAGMAN. In life or a disaster, you must be able to take care of yourself. You may not be a medical doctor, and your grandmother and your great-grandmother probably weren't either. But they still knew how to minister to their family's health issues. And so can you. Check out our American Heritage Armies kit at www.changewithwoods.com. Your life may depend on it. This is Joe Charles, the guy whose voice is heard announcing for the Hagman and Hagman Report right here on YouTube and across the Global Star Radio Network. There have been many people wondering whose music is being played during those breaks. Well, you guessed it. And we're very pleased to announce that all that music and 11 brand new songs from the CD New Jerusalem is set for release on April 10th for download on iTunes. You can help support my ministry and be blessed by this awesome, inspiring recording. I have been fortunate to work with some phenomenal musicians from around the world that helped us put this recording together in the studio. Simply go to joecharlesmusic.com and click on the iTunes link. Or, if you'd rather have a CD, we'll send one right out to you. Just leave me your email and we'll get right back to you. And thanks to Doug and Joe Hagman for making this all possible. God bless. You know him, folks. He's, he's a, I'm telling you. Uh, Stan Dale to me is, uh, a fascinating guy. I, I could sit, I feel like a little kid when, when I'm listening to him, because I could sit like at his knee and listen to him like all day long. And Holly Dale, the author of Prepare for Persecution, you, you folks, you gotta get that, uh, especially now, right now, given the time that we're, times that we're living in. And, you know, no one's pushing me to say that. It's just, it makes sense, okay? Dare to prepare. Folks, if you don't have that book, you're gonna, please, do yourself a favor, get that book, uh, 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 Dare to Prepare. Speaking of books, I just wanna mention two things. 
you know, some light reading, okay, some very good reading, some very interesting reading, is Racing With My Shadow by uh, a listener, a very dear friend, uh, Karen Rogers. Great book. She, Man, you got to see the pictures in there where she was big time, man, big time. She's a, she, she's a celebrity. Karen Rogers, great book, great read. Actually, very compelling read, uh, Racing With My Shadow, Karen Rogers. And, and also, um, if you haven't done so already, one last thing, and then we're going to get back to Stan. Prepare for Persecution by Maria Canese. You know, I, my wife and I were talking, and, and she said to me, you know, make sure you, you tell the listeners to spiritually prepare. Well, Prepare for Persecution by Maria Canese, available on Amazon. That, shook, that, that, that book should be flying out of Amazon crates at a time because it's a great book. Uh, I'm humbled at the fact that I was able to write the foreword on that, but that's not the reason for the book, uh, to buy the book. There's a lot of spiritual preparation in that book, Prepare for Persecution. All right, I've said my. All right, Stan, right before the break, we were talking about Saudi Arabia and the dividing factions um, within Saudi Arabia. Yeah, well... Prince um, Mohammed bin Salman, who is number two in line, has been given so much authority already by the king uh, without appointing him as successor, you know, de facto. He has given him, you know, the, the defense ministry, uh, you know, has his uh, portfolio plus a lot of other things. Now, he's young, he's 31, and so he's popular with the millennials there in Saudi Arabia. Um, until recently, the Saudi government was paying a lot of money to its citizens, giving them all kinds of, uh, you know, um, perks because of all the oil money that uh, the Saudi family uh, was bringing in. And it, it was obviously from the oil. Now, as I've said before, at the end of World War II, you know, 45, 46, Saudi Arabia was broke. It owed money to several countries. It couldn't pay its international debts. It was just a bunch of sheep herders or goat herders or whatever, camel jockeys, whatever. Now, all of a sudden, uh, a, a team, a small team of Californian uh, oil prospectors came over and made a deal with the sheikh in, on the east side of uh, Saudi Arabia, northeast side, on the, the Persian Gulf Coast there, with the sheikh of Damam Island. And they, and they said, look, can we drill for oil here because, you know, we're, we're looking for sources for it. And uh, Sheikh says, yes, okay. So they drill six wells, and each one of them hits water. The seventh well hits oil, and a lot of it. And that's where the American and uh, Arabian, the Aramco uh, oil company was formed, right there where they drilled that seventh well, right in the middle of Damam Island. Now, after that, they became immensely, immensely wealthy, of course, and that's power behind the scenes all across the planet. Well, now then, the young prince of Mohammed bin Salman has put up for sale 5% of the shares that they have in Aramco. And he says, there's so much oil down there that it's worth, oh, at least a $2 trillion on the, the market should we bring it all out right now. Well, uh, a number of... Uh, Insiders in the oil industry and financial groups and investor groups have been investigating this. And I told you on the show a few months back, I said, I bet you anything that he doesn't have that much oil down under the ground. He's trying to get what he can out of it while people don't know about it. Because not only is he wanting to sell 5% of the Aramco holding, he wants to 
turn Saudi Arabia into tourism and other types, you know, mineral exports of gold and minerals. He wants to go that way, that their economy becomes dependent upon that instead of oil. Well, one of the, the people or the companies that was analyzing his claim to $2 trillion worth of oil underground uh, dredged up or drilled up some information that said that it is only worth about $400 million, you know, like one-fifth the value that, that the prince said it's worth. And if that's the case, it means they got a lot of less oil and they got some real serious reasons to find ways to boost their economy. And their allegiances, I guess, uh, are, are very much a part of that. Um, you know, the the relationship between the Saud family and the White House is apparently still good, in spite of the fact that they uh, supported uh, the Democrats in this election, several others before that. They put money toward both sides, but they they lean toward the Democrats. Now, um, when when you say that the, that the oil that they say they've got is is one. Uh, fifth of what it, what it really is. Uh, you can prove this by looking at the Saudi investment banks um, because they're looking for people to buy up that 5% and they're getting no takers. The smart money is not, it's not supporting the oil in Saudi Arabia. Um, and if they don't get it, there's, there's going to be you know some financial problems in the country, believe it or not. Some of the personal uh, fortunes may not be so uh, hard to hit because they've got it stashed away in other banks other countries. But for the average person there in Saudi Arabia, this is a, a crisis situation. Uh, anyway, just keep an eye on him He's uh, and his family. They are major players in the world and in the Middle East. And uh, the Saudis do not like Iran. They uh, Their brand of... of uh, of the Muslim religion, you know, the Iranians, is contrary to what they have in Saudi Arabia. So they're looking for uh, nukes from anywhere they can get them. From, I don't know whether Pakistan will give them to them or, or North Korea or whoever, but they're looking for nukes to use uh, against Iran and some of the other countries that are harboring uh, the ISIS uh, radicals. Now, this is interesting in addition to the fact because about 19... Oh, Let's see, 94, yeah, 1994, Rabbi uh, Nak, uh, Nakamani in uh, Israel uh, predicted that North Korea would trigger a nuclear war. And uh, this Rabbi Nak, uh, Nakamani, he predicted accurately in advance the Six-Day War in 67, the Yom Kippur War of 73, and he uses the Torah to back up his, his claims. And of course, he's dead now, but uh, he said of all the enemies, not Persia or Iran, not Syria, not Iraq or Babylon, and not Gaddafi of Libya, this was back in 94, he said, none of those are the major threats to Israel. He says Korea will arrive here, and it will be a major threat to world peace and us, uh, you know, with nuclear powers. And of course, the man, you know, passed. He died, but, and that was in 94 as well. But, um, anyway, when you see his prediction and you see uh, North Korea saber rattling pretty loudly and the United States and China and Russia all seem to be concerned what's going to happen there, um, this, this rabbi's prophecy, uh, could very well be true and about to happen. Uh, I know it sounds strange, but, you 
know, a small country like that, a small people. Even in Daniel, they talk about the Antichrist coming into power with the help of a small people. And I don't know whether that meant short people or whether it's a small population or a small country, but North Korea fits all those. Interesting, isn't it? Very much so. Uh, Very much so. And, you know, just um, whether we're seeing the uh, a number of, of, uh, I don't know what you'd even call them, groups, whether they're governments, whether they're parts of, you know, the shadow government, the deep state, foreign actors, whether they're, we're, we're seeing them, uh, testing Trump's resolve, or we are really seeing the, uh, that the hype, this hype is real, that it's more than just hype, that the potential for, uh, conflict on a number of uh, in a number of of regions in the world, um, in a much higher and more destructive rate than we've seen before, it, it's it's here, and I'm having a hard time with you know the the news reports of all this stuff. When you and John brought this to my attention, uh, John Robertson, um, about the differences between what's being reported about situations the U.S. is involved in in the U.S. media versus uh, in the international media. Uh, you know, Germany or, or the UK or Australia, they have a much, uh, a much more serious outlook. And, and, you know, where we see, uh, you know, the rhetoric back and forth, uh, from Kim Jong-un to Trump and everything that they're saying, it seems as though uh, many in the international community believe that we are much closer to the brink of war, even nuclear war, than even we, we think or we're being told. Well, and it, yeah, it, it I know. It doesn't look good. I know. And, um, well, look, you know, certain things do need to be kept close to the chest when you're, especially in war games or, you know, national uh, trade agreements or whatever. You don't show all your cards. Now, Americans get used to and have gotten used to um, being told everything. They want to know everything. They, they voted the uh, party uh, in power, into power, and therefore they are entitled to know everything. That's just not clever business, and that's really not their right. You appoint people to do a job for you at the highest levels of the government, the military, and you've got to let them do it. And I would not be like these foreign pressers saying, I would not be panicking people here, and I certainly would not be telling the enemy that we're concerned that there's going to be a nuclear exchange. Uh, you know, we're really afraid or, you know, getting prepared. Uh, it just fuels uh, idiots like that guy over North Korea. And he is, uh, you know, a loose cannon. Um, he's he's a factor that uh, is really an unpredictable one, a random thing. Um, he may just one day feel that well, nobody is taking me seriously, so I'm going to you know blow up something or somebody. And he does have the ability to do that. He's got submarines, you know, a, a massive uh, submarine fleet, and they're not as big as some of our nuclear reactor-driven uh, ships, but still, he's got the ability to hurt us. And it only takes one. One atomic EMP type, you know, magnetic bomb over the United States at about 180 to 220 miles altitude. One of those will so cripple us that it will never recover. And so if he managed to get through all of our defenses and do that, you know, we're done. Um, so that's why, you know, the foreign papers say a lot of things. And, and Holly and I lived over in Australia for years and uh, we did see the difference in reporting. There did seem to be uh, the American news seemed to be uh, censored, uh, and there are pros and cons of that. Like I said, uh, if it's just uh, you know for political reasons to not let anybody know what's happening, keep you you know ignorant and uh, 
batteries that we don't get here is useless news anyway. But uh, and some of the report, I can see why we wouldn't want to endorse that kind of news because it would hurt uh, security of what we're doing. So it's a it's a confusion all over the planet. That's Satan's ace up his sleeve is confuse the people, put so many things at them in so many different directions that they are totally confused, and that's when he wants to come in and strike while we just don't know whether they're coming or going, as they say. Stan, I want to. You mentioned the the North Korean submarines, and I've been reading a little bit about these, um, and a number of people uh, believe that they they are uh, very dangerous in the sense. And I don't. Uh, I'm not a, a scientific or mechanical guy, but apparently there's something different about these submarines where they have the ability to go undetected, um, and it, they they're diesel operated, which makes them easier to find. And then there's something else about them that that makes them uh, more difficult uh, to find. Um, do you have any information about about uh, the type of submarines they use and the technology uh, that they're no more than with? what you would have? Uh, I, you know, I as I said, I don't think they're nuclear reactor type thing. I think they are diesel uh, submarines, which are noisy. And they don't, they can't travel underwater for as long as the others can, you know. Um, they have to uh, service for air exchanges and for, uh, you know, refueling occasionally. But, uh, um, I don't know how they would have the stealth technology you're talking about unless they got it from the Chinese or the Russians. Um, we know that the, uh, they're both the Russia and China can get it within 20 miles of our uh, border on the West Coast and not be detected. They've, they've proven it, you know, by sneaking up and surfacing, saying, ha ha, I'm here, I got you. And then, you know, chugging off into the, the ocean somewhere. So did North Korea get some of this technology? It's possible. And I don't know how they're masking, you know, the Russian and Chinese submarines, whether it's, you know, the, the mythical Caterpillar Drive or, you know, um, because even that makes noise at high frequency, you just gotta be able to pick it up. So I don't know. Uh, I, that's the short answer. I don't know very much about their their submarine fleet, other than it's suddenly serviced, and it, the one purpose of it is to be aggressively, you know, attacking the United States. Okay. Um, if we can kind of switch gears here, go into your your show images page, um, number thirty five. If we could mm-hmm. talk about this a little bit, I uh, just clicked on the article, but the a documentary debunking evolution. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we got uh, we filed for an early release DVD copy. It arrived, uh, I think it was Friday. One of the best uh, filmed and scripted uh, and supported documentaries I've seen in the Christian community, as far as you know, proving that the evolution concept is wrong. Uh, and there were several. Uh, salient point that they made uh, that we, you know, when you think about what they said, you think, well, of course, that does disprove, you know, evolutionary changes say, in the Grand Canyon and the layers of, you know, fossils and stuff they found there. It's it's such a fantastic proof, I couldn't believe it. One of the things that stood out was they were talking about the, the flood of Noah, and they were talking you know, with biologists and stuff. All these guys were PhDs. There was not a single one that wasn't. And um, they said, look, you know, uh, Noah took two of every, you know, righteous, you know, good animal into the ark and so many of the unclean animals and that kind of stuff. And people would say, well, how could you make an ark big enough to have every kind of animal on the planet? 
And the the biologist said, look, if you look at the spectrum of, you know, the genus, the phyla of, of the various uh, animals in the world, the birds and the mammals and all this, you'll see that they fall into categories. There are the feline, you know, the cats, the mountain lions, the leopards, they're all part of the same DNA structure and just minor variations in, in the gene structure. Okay. If you look at uh, lupa, you know, the, the lupi are the dogs. You know, if you look at the dogs and all kinds of dogs, wolves, uh, and things that you have within that, that all you need is a pair of dogs of any kind, and they've got in their DNA the the material to be adaptively mutating, you know, in their environment. Same with the cat, same with the birds. And so he said, look, you, you don't need every kind of cat, just a pair of cats. And from their DNA in different environments, they will produce, you know, leopards, uh, tigers, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought, wow, that's how you could have so many species onto the ark because you only need the the representative, uh, you know, genome. Isn't that incredible? <laughs> yeah, it is. It's uh, very interesting. <laughs> wow. And, and see, that kind of... that. Uh, supports what the evolution is trying to say is that, well, look, this butterfly is mutated because it's in the snow and that was in the heat, and, you know, this cat has done this because it's in the desert and that was in the mountains, and, okay, they adaptively mutate after the flood, you know, to, to their environment. So it just makes perfect sense. Anyway, there are a lot of little goodies like that in this documentary. Um, as I say, the, the, the film quality was exceptional, and the arguments were straightforward and, and not too highbrow, you know, they weren't $50 words uh, it was explained in simple speak so that even I can understand it, so there you go Well, it's something, I just, uh, I bookmarked it Stan, and I'm going to have to um, wait for it to come out and, and check it out when it does uh, Well, it's out now, I got, the, oh, okay. I got the, one of the first DVDs I'd, I'd been on the waiting list for six weeks until they, they released it Okay, and, I uh, thought you said you got a, an early edition copy, but okay, uh, that's good. Oh, well, it is the first release, you know, like, um, uh, I just stood in line, and, you know, like standing outside the, the store before the sale starts, you know, but <laughs> I got mine, and uh, I'm very glad that I did. Uh, it has Dr. Steve Austin uh, that uh, did the study for two or three years for his doctoral dissertation on Mount St. Helens and how it created a 140th scale Grand Canyon in two or three years. You know, and he showed how it happened and how the water flows from the different layers, uh, you know, formed uh, the, like would have been the, the, the river that etched out the Grand Canyon. It shows that it etched out the, um, Mount St. Helens, uh, you know, downflow from the ash and various things and how the water that was in the layers of ash that came out, this layer, that layer, this layer, that layer, how the water condensed and then fell down to the low points underneath all that ash and made little rivers that eroded the the ash layers from underneath and they collapsed and made sharp falls which made the sharp edges like in the Grand Canyon and not wandering uh, you know kind of sandpapered smoothed edges as the stream flow uh, would do if it were doing it over millions of years anyway just another one of the, the things I, I didn't know about that one but the, the proofs they gave and the illustrations were just really good I just you know I wish I, I knew how to get a hold of the producers because if you try to reach these guys, you know, they've got a, a phalanx of people that keep, you know, wannabe script writers or, you know, storylines from bothering them because there'd be a lot of people trying to say, hey, look at my idea. 
drafted into to, to Noah, you know, and his his family, and why was Atlantis destroyed, you know, for what they were doing in Genesis six? Um, and that's the sad part about it. You just can't get through the protective uh, cordon of, of people that uh, you know stave you off. So, uh, for for one of being able to get through, I guess we can't tell these things to them. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. I think there's another another crowd right underneath that in uh, image thirty two. Um, and uh, that's a guy that uh, got a hold of a bunch of these DVDs and or put me on the waiting list and got it for me. And uh, he has a, a, a website and a service that uh, goes to the, the schools, and it has lesson plans for um, various students, you know, subjects dealing with creation versus evolution. And so the teachers can take these lesson plans and these videos and materials and and tell the students, look, here is the here's the evidence, the facts. You decide is the Bible correct or is evolution correct. And you know, I just think that people like that, that this guy's organization ought to really be supported and people ought to grab those lesson plans and, and if there's you know, like teaching at home, homeschooling their children, get these. I mean they're just uh, I you know, I don't uh get a commission for it, but I'm just telling you that I'm I'm really impressed with what they're doing uh, at the Genesis Apologetics uh, site there. And you can click on that picture of Lucy, the uh, alleged uh, you know, missing link, and uh, you know, go to his site and uh, see all the stuff they do. Their, their work is probably more detailed and involved than, than that uh, is Genesis History uh, video because they have so much more uh, data to present and a lot more time to present it than in a you know, 90-minute documentary. However, that's that's my rave on their products. I, I was impressed, as I say. I haven't uh, heard much on. Sorry, go on. Joe's pretty. Uh, Joe's pretty uh, hot on the uh, Bill Nye videos. Sorry, sorry, Joe. Uh, <laughs> yes, Dan. I don't know if you saw. Um, oh my goodness! There's a. Um, I'll send you the article now. Um, All right. Bill of, Nye has a new special that was put out on Netflix. Yeah. Okay. And Spore. Bill Nye, the science guy, for those of you who might not know who he is, he was a, um, he's not a scientist. He's an engineer who had a, sh- a TV show uh, in the 90s uh, for kids for science. Well, he has this new show on Netflix. And, folks, if you go on HagmanReport.com, the article's up there. Stan, I just sent it to you. You're not going to have time to watch the video, nor would you really want to. But... Part of Bill Nye's new science show includes transgenderism. And the title of the article is Bill Nye's Bizarre Video on Transgenderism Bombs on YouTube. It's a, it's a song, it's a rap video of this woman rapping about her private parts and about how you should, uh, you know, how gay sex is good and you should be bisexual. I mean, it's just very vulgar graphic. And the, the show is called Bill Nye Saves the World. <laughs> Any thoughts on, on Bill Nye? <laughs> Good grief. You yeah. know, these people are going to be sorry that they, they took this position. Um, you One of the, the, the practical problems with uh, homosexuality, with, um, uh, you know, uh, cohabiting without marriage, is that you don't... Uh, your population doesn't expand like it used to where you have 12 children in a family. People don't want to do that anymore. It's too much work. Maybe one child or two. And that's why uh, the American culture is being bred out of existence by the other cultures coming in and other cultures in other parts of the world who are breeding rapidly. 
and and uh, forming this sense of community, even if it's pretty bizarre in some of the extreme, uh, uh, you know, religions of the world. But uh, we're, we're disappearing because we're just too comfortable here, not taking on the responsibility of making marriage between a man and a woman marriage, and not between you know two people of the same sex. And you know, we're not spreading. If we would do that and not let homosexuality spread, we would have a lot of the diseases that we have that are venereal diseases. Uh, we're reaping the the destruction of what we've sown by allowing this. And for Nye to say that, I mean, there's a special place for him, I'm sure. Amen. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. ridiculous. Sad. Well, Stan, we uh, that was a quick man. Hour. What happened? To, uh, we just we just got started. <laughs> that was a quick. Well, hour. Uh, yeah, yeah. Have you guys heard anything else on the Antarctic uh, mysteries down there at all? No, not at all. No, I have not either. And I actually, uh, uh, from just my general daily research, it's uh, been quiet on uh, a lot of fronts. I haven't seen any uh, forums with with uh, speculation about it, nor have I seen any news. Uh, pertaining to it, so something that we'll have to keep our eye on. Okay, well, not on the secret base or anything, but if you look at image 37 when we get off the air, click on that, uh, the picture, and let it uh, enlarge, and you'll see where they took two radar uh, images of Antarctica, a certain part of it there, where at the Larson uh, Sea Ice Shelf, and where you see the rainbow waves coming out from, you know, either a, a long red crack looking thing or a hillside or whatever, that's showing you the direction and the speed with which the ice is pulling apart there. I thought it was just a very interesting piece of technology to have a look at. So have a look at that uh, oh. after the show, guys. Thanks for wow. another uh, happy time here. Yeah, Stan, thank you. Um, and, folks, uh, Dare to Prepare. Uh, that's about the challenge in the name of Holly Dale's book, Dare to Prepare. Uh, grab yourself a copy of that as well as uh, Stan's book and his lecture series. My goodness. And you get the, um, the May 1st is the drawing for the winners. Uh, At midnight, May 1st. That's right. We've got uh, quite a few entries, so people are interested. All right. Excellent. Thank you, Stan, for another, uh, great hour. Audited by Price Waterhouse. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you, guys. And we'll talk with you next Thanks, week. Buddy. And tell Holly, give her our love. Uh, will do. Lord bless you now. Bye bye. All right, that will do it for us tonight. Um, it's a great show. Uh, Dr. Peter Vincent Pry gave us a, a great breakdown of, of North Korean situation uh, from all angles. And uh, Sandeo was our guest in the last hour, and uh, the show just kind of went by uh, real quick. Tomorrow we got a, another fantastic show lined up for you, so make sure that you uh, are here with us. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, please. Folks, please subscribe yeah. to our YouTube channel. We'll be back tomorrow. Stay safe. God bless. Have a great evening.